was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars, skags. Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish. And every time we love it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. And every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, that every time we love and it feels just like this, it feels just like this, it feels I wish I had a time machine, wish I had a better rhyming speed, wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from my lime bean, I wish that I could spread my wings, I wish that I had seven limbs, yeah. that way I'd hold on to everything and laugh when I hear people wishing for the better things. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish, dímelo, dímelo, at least I kind of understand it. <laughs> wish that I could throw the deuce like Gambit and get so large I could play pool with the planets. Yeah. I wish I was an astronaut, I wish I knew more classic rock. <laughs> Focused on myself, you can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like... I wish, I wish that every time we love it, it feels just like this. Hello, cats and kittens, and welcome to another episode of The Debrief. I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray, and I am so delighted to be talking to you today after I finally convinced my favorite law professor, Professor John Hansen, a man whose lessons through two classes, torts law and corporate law, formed so much of my, of the basis of the language that I use to explain the politics that I have and make me feel like the feelings that I feel can be realized and concretized and said in a way that feels less squishy and easily dismissed than they were when I first came to law school lessons that I'm so grateful for. I'm so glad that finally I convinced him to overcome uh, his podcast shyness to speak to us. I um, I don't know. It was just such a pleasure. I was a little embarrassed to hear myself fangirling the way I was on playback, but it's authentic. It's true. I just, I literally think of something that I learned in that class on a weekly basis. And I was, I'm, it's such a privilege to be able to share just a little piece of that with you. I hope he's able to come back to the podcast um, on a recurring basis because there's just so much more to say. We could have gone on for so much longer, but I want to hear from you. Enough of me prattling on. Let's get to it. Eric, long time no chat. How are you doing? Hey, how's it going? I don't know why you're coming in so... Oh, I have you turned down. Okay. I'm doing well. What's on your mind tonight? So, um, I just had to say I really enjoyed this episode I don't understand why he was so timid to come on because he seemed <laughs> to handle himself very well. I mean, especially since, you know, as a professor, he speaks in front of students for so many, so, so, for so long, so often. So um, I really thought he did a great job. I, but, um, I agree. I hope he goes on everybody's podcast. I hope he's the new, 
I don't know. Richard Wolf. I hope he does the rounds. <laughs> so I definitely had to say that. And the next thing I had to say is I'm so happy you did the um um the monetary um theory episode with mm-hmm. the because that just cleared up everything for me. Oh good. It was because I was like I was I was I kinda understood modern mon- uh, monetary theory, but there was like elements that I just wasn't grasping because I'm just so stuck in this way we think about currency and the way we think about money. So it took that conversation to really break it down, to really break um, my mindset. And I think sometimes, and I like the way she talked about it um, because sometimes when you hear conversations, I remember I was listening to uh, Jordan Ch- Jordan's channel mm-hmm. and he had a guy in there who was very you know into MMT. But it was just so aggressive and it was just so filled with, and I got his first, so filled with frustration and being upset about how people talk about, you know, uh, the economy and everything like that, that I couldn't receive the information that he was saying. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I feel like it's good when you can have a calming, when you have someone like you who asks us good questions and they can, you can have a calm conversation. That's, you know, that's, um, doesn't have all that extra baggage onto it. So you can like, so people can start receiving the information that's coming out. Yeah. I think this actually goes back a little bit to what we were saying um, on the episode with Nathan Robinson about how sometimes like not knowing as much and asking the genuine questions out of ignorance gets more out of the table. That's useful to the audience than coming in as an authority. Cause I come and go, look, it ebbs and flows how much I really understand what's going on with MMT. I remember there was, I had a Eureka moment some years back. I was on a treadmill. I remember listening to (laughs) Stephanie Kelton on somebody else's podcast. And she told this like analogy about bridges. Cause they were trying to get to the bottom of like, when is it inflationary and when isn't, when is it like efficient spending and when is it? And she said something about a bridge if you need a bridge and you build the bridge, there's no problem. But if there's already a bridge and you build a redundant bridge, and I, I asked her about that analogy because it was a light bulb moment for me then, even though I don't remember or understand it now. And I asked her about it when she came on the Bernie podcast, excuse me, hear the burn. And she didn't remember it. And I was like, well, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm sh- shit out of luck again. Um, but yeah, let me ask, have you, have you, um, I, I feel like I'm negligent. I haven't actually read um, The Deficit Myth. Have you read it? No, I have not read that. I think that would help both of us. My best friend, she listened to the episode, and she's actually read it. And she said that she was really hoping this happened because she was thinking about The Deficit Myth when we did the Richard Wolf episode. Uh, and that reminded me that she's doing more homework that I should be doing than I have been doing. So okay. next time, oh. I'm going to do my reading for sure. I'll pick up the deficit. That's uh, Stephanie wrote the deficit myth, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So I like the way she wrote. So I'll pick up her book because one thing, like I feel, sometimes I feel like I'm a fiction reader. I like fiction, mm-hmm. and sometimes when I feel like when I read nonfiction, people write nonfiction like they're writing nonfiction, and they mm-hmm. forget that nonfiction can be entertaining. Mm-hmm. You can write in a way because I've read nonfiction books that were like. I like the way these people write. It just it just moves mm-hmm. sometimes, that, but that's unfortunately not the whole case. Um, yeah, I gotta give Nathan some credit because I I find his books to be very very easy to read, and I tend to struggle with a lot of nonfiction. But I see people in the chat saying the deficit myth is an easy read and that it's relatively short. So 
No excuses for us. <laughs> no, no excuses. <laughs> um, so the next thing I really wanted to say is one of the things and one of the reasons why I like these two conversations that you have with your old professor and with Stephanie is that in both of these conversations, we're talking about concepts that are, or at least tr- talking about concepts that there's an innateness that are entrenched in the way our society is run. So we are entrenched to think about money in a specific way. So it makes it hard for people to break out that mindset when someone comes out and says like, no, you've been thinking about that the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with um, your professor here, when he talks about the corporations and tort reform and how the system is set up to view corporations as more of the um, protagonist, if I will, in the scenario mm-hmm. and how, our society has convinced even the most poorest people because I've had conversation with people who don't make money at all. Mm-hmm. And the amount of times that poor people and working class people will stick up for big corporations mm-hmm. over workers. It's just like, how, how are you able to capture, how are they able to capture your mind? So, and like fight and like literally like vivid, like get livid at you when you tell them like, nah, son, that's not how it is. And it's like you almost like you you took something away from them. Mm-hmm. And I no, think that <clears throat> sorry. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. And I think that to me is um, the core thing that we have to to figure out how to do how to break that mind capture. Yes, a hundred percent. One of the things <laughs> we didn't get too into it in the episode. Like I, I'm sorry, I kept going getting distracted because all these memories kept coming back, and I was like, oh yeah, and this, and this, and this. But one of the things that we didn't really get into was that. Um, so he's like a law and psychology guy. Uh, he he does he has this. Um, I don't know if you want to call it like a group, but it's like a it's it's like an area of academia called the situation situationist, where he brings a lot of the law and psychology into it, and he used to start every class with a commercial from like the nineties, usually sometimes earlier that helped demonstrate the kinds of scripts that we use to do exactly what you described to get people to believe things like trickle down economics is going to work for them. And if businesses are doing well, then regular people will do well. And so many of these scripts, when we talked a little in the podcast about choice, the idea that if you, convince the public that something bad happened because of somebody's choice, because of their personal responsibility, um, then you don't have to feel kind of collective social guilt uh, or try to correct the situation or hold anybody else accountable, right? So there would be these these TV ads that were for like innocuous stuff, like, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> like breakfast cereal, and then sometimes for like not innocuous stuff, like cigarettes, or like Sunday morning cartoons advertising children's toys, And once you saw them all together, it was crazy how much of this stuff in like full-on just plain old advertising for consumer goods was really pushing this message that tricks are for kids. You know, they don't want you to have it. Mom doesn't want you to have it. You're breaking up. I'm breaking up? You just broke up a little bit. Okay. But there's this idea that so uh, someone's trying to take everything from you and you got to, you know, you, you got to guard your honor. You get to make your own selection. You don't have to listen to anybody all over the place. And then you get these cigarettes ad- ads where it's like, you know, obviously it's your, it's your choice baby with these feminist slim cigarettes and 
on and on and on. And you really realize how insidious these scripts are and how much Republican conservatives understand what power there is in convincing people that they have control and that the flip side of control is a, a, a requirement for accountability for the everyman, but never accountability for the corporation. So, yeah, you're, you're in power. You have choice. You have freedom, 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 freedom. And because you have all that freedom that I told you about in these commercials, not substantive freedom, but, you know, freedom to pick your breakfast cereal, you can't complain when there's, like, shards of glass in your <laughs> breakfast cereal or whatever, you know? And I feel like, to me, listening to that conversation really helped me um, understand and poke holes into like when you have uh, arguments for Robbie because I find the part that he always gets is he'll talk about like when you talk when you guys were having that kind of debate with the whole child worker thing mm -hmm. and he would bring up well you know the child and the parent if you know there's neglect or harm done by the corporation then the child and the parent can get together and they can sue the corporation and I'm like with what money because mm -hmm. And he doesn't break it down. Like he just sees the and he just sees the surface level choice. Mm -hmm. You have a surface level choice, but he doesn't see all the other, you know, obstacles that define that choice. So if a parent has a child working in the factory, chances are that parent is not rich. If that mm -hmm. parent is not rich, that means they probably need an income from that child to do X. Mm -hmm. If they need income from the child and the parent's income, they don't have the money to afford a lawyer. Mm -hmm. that can compete with a big corporation lawyer. And it's, and it's also likely, since they need the money, that whatever paltry settlement that might be offered, they're likely to take because okay. they're looking down, hiring a lawyer that they can't afford and pursuing a case for years, could be decades, to try to get a judgment. Look what happened to Stephen Donzinger. He won his judgment. They haven't paid a dollar, and they spent the last however many years locking the man up and, and persecuting him, prosecuting him in an individual capacity. So that that's your option versus just taking a few thousand dollars or whatever. Maybe it's more money than your family's even ever seen. $10,000, $20,000. Well, then the corporation can keep on keeping on with impunity. And the last thing I want to say before I go, because I know probably a lot of people want to speak, is if you ever if you get a chance and you to talk, because it looks Marianne Williams is probably going to announce March. I mean, she's going to announce March 4th about her run. Mm -hmm. Um. I don't know if Stephanie works on campaigns, but if you can get into the air that Marianne needs to put her on her campaign staff, mm -hmm. because I, if there's any good that can possibly come from Marianne Williamson running, the one thing I think that can happen is she could be the person to maybe push out MMMT out there. Mm -hmm. If he can, you know, on her platform, have someone like Stephanie who is, you know, who knows MM MMT and they can get talking points out there and they can show you that, you know, um, at least get it to a broader audience than, you know, the, the small channels that are talking about it on YouTube and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I think that could be a net good if you just get it out there and people can start thinking, oh, wait, we, can, we do have the money to do X, Y, and Z. We don't have to worry about, you know, always coming out with the idea of just taxing, taxing, taxing. We have the funds. Yeah, honestly, I think that's a really good way to think about um, the Marianne campaign. You know, <clears throat> I think folks have done a very good job registering their disagreements with her and their frustrations with her. <clears throat> Excuse me. And not that they shouldn't stop doing that, but now that it's increasingly clear that she's, you know, going to throw her hat in the ring, you just start thinking about, well, what can we get out of this? What would it be useful for her to say? What parts of the Overton window need pushing? And how can we 
increase the likelihood that she is, in fact, going to do some of the very good and necessary work that needs to be done from the platform of running for president. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it I had to say. Thank you. You have a good one. Keep the faith. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for calling in. Keep the faith. All right. Let's hoppity hoppity hop. Uh... L, what's on your mind tonight, L? Can anyone mute yourself, L? You look like a maybe a first-time caller. I don't recognize this profile picture. <clears throat> Sorry, maybe you didn't anticipate that I was oh. going to jump back back around on the <laughs> I line. I was not ready, um, and it's my <laughs> second time, so a uh, little little correct on both. Um, <laughs> love today's episode, absolutely amazing. I've been like fantasizing about interviewing one of my professors from school, um, so totally loved what you talked about today, and it's also uh, related to what I've been working on. What I hope a lot of people have been working on is. Right. How do we get justice for the the folks in East Palestine? Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things I've been doing, um, I mean, more recently, I've been dig- digging into actual documents, uh, government documents, the ruling, the, the, the withdrawal, all of that. Um, and what led me to look at these documents is messing around with chat GPT. Mm. I don't know if you've done anything with that. I haven't, although I did listen to that series of episodes on the daily about how the guys chat GPT fell in love with him. Oh yeah. I mean, I imagine all of the news as it should be is all about all of the, the negative aspects of it, um, mm-hmm. which I could talk hours about. Uh, I would say over 50% of the things that I ask it or input is related to its ethics and really trying to figure out how it works as mm-hmm. like a model. Um, but one of the things I was asking it, like one of the many subjects, has to do with uh, right this this proposed ruling and everything. So I want to read a response that I got, um, and then kind of let you know what I'm doing in terms of what documents I'm digging into and where you think, and if you think there's like a case for this. Because like in the episode, um, right, you and your professor talked a lot about. Uh, getting the, the victim's justice and how do you mm-hmm. quantify the, the health impacts and all of that. Um, and so let me read, read this to you and get your opinion on what I think I could be working on and uh, get a lawyer's perspective on what, what, what contracts to look at. Um, okay, so I'm going to read you the, the chat GPT thing. It's, it's like a minute. It's not terribly long. Um, the DOT's estimated medical cost of a hazardous material derailment is based on the FRA's cost estimate of a serious injury, which is defined as an injury that involves certain criteria such as hospitalization for more than 48 hours, bone fractures, deep lacerations, severed limbs, permanent disfigurement, or a concussion or other brain, traumatic brain injury. This definition does not include the potential medical costs and health impacts of a hazardous material spill or release, which is a major concern for the DOT and the public. The DOT's estimate of the probability of a derailment happening does use actual historical hazardous material derailment information, but the estimated medical cost of such an event is not based on actual costs and impacts of a hazardous material release. As for the reason, sorry, just one, just the how it like wrapped up. Mm-hmm. Um, 
As for the reason why the DOT's proposed rule was ultimately withdrawn, there may be a number of factors involved, including concerns about the cost and feasibility of implementing the ECP braking system, potential legal challenges, and opposition from the rail industry. Um, so I've, I've, so huge caveat and disclosure, I've been getting tons of information back from the model that's incorrect, which is mm -hmm. why I'm digging into the actual documents and, and doing the work myself. Um, but like, you know, I guess the, the lawyer's impact, uh, the lawyer's uh, perspective I'm looking to get is like, well, that's very the right, thorny the right place. Um, and well, we know I'm questions? not, you know, I'm no longer a lawyer. I suspect I'm not barred. I haven't taken a CLE in like, I don't know how many years. Oh, I meant, I meant law, law school graduate. Sure. <laughs> so what, I mean, are you asking me what my impressions are? Assuming um, that that's accurate? Because it kind of feels, I mean, it feels truthy. Yeah. I mean, the, the part that stands out is obviously the unwillingness to build kind of liability estimates in that are actually based on what we know are likely long-term health consequences of toxic exposure, including cancer. The, the whole point of these chemicals and the reason why they were flagged and the reason why they're testing for specifically vinyl chloride and some of the things that it morphs into when it's exposed to other elements is because they are known carcinogens. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there's obviously some respiratory issues and some skin rashes, but the thing that's keeping people up at night and not wanting to drink the water isn't the idea that they're going to have a sore throat or a cough the next day. It's the idea that they're going to have, you know, pancreatic cancer 10 years from now, you know, laryngeal cancer 10 years from now, um, thyroid cancer, pain, prostate cancer 10 years from now. And that's what we've seen and all the, these other sites where there's been toxic exposure. And these companies know that, right? Like, I think, I don't can't remember if this came up in the episode, but there's a whole creepy, toxic, horrible thing about how people, how these co corporations, I think there was a movie about this recently, how these corporations um, estimate the value of a lost human life. Yeah. And calculating I... out how, what the person's earning potential is and how much the family they had. And, I mean, they can put a number on these things, or at least they think that they can put a number on these things. But all of this is biased by the fact that you don't want that number to get so high that the corporation can no longer stay in business. And I think the reality is, given the way I value human life, and certainly given the way that I would value the pain and suffering that comes from having an entire community deal with the long-term effects of cancer, it's gruesome, it's horrendous, that even one of these instances, if they actually had to pay what they owed, and these things were being valued accurately, would put the train company out of business or make it so precarious that it would install every safety measure under the sun. I, I agree completely. I think my question is, you know, kind of like force the vote. There's a lot of potential. There's, there's a strong case for moving in this direction, um, especially since that's what all of the conversation is about, right? It's the cost, the cost, the cost. And I got like to looking at least at the, the table of the cost benefit analysis and it kind of, you know, the, the very, small number associated with, um, right, the cost benefit, which is all based on worker-related injuries. It has nothing to do, it literally has mm. information, the, the DOT had information available on hazardous material derailment, and they used it to calculate the probability, but completely ignored it in terms of the health aspect. 
And so if now all of this light is being shown on it, you know, Mayor Pete, let's maybe run the numbers again. Uh, I actually interviewed with Norfolk Southern back in the day, and Mm. I've cleaned up a mess or two that McKinsey's made. Mm. (laughs) So, (laughs) like, you know, FRA, serious injury, $86,000 for a serious injury, three, three folks per train, that's... That's the estimate of a of a life. Eighty six thousand dollars. Sixty eight. Oh, not uh, even. Super <laughs> dyslexic. No, no, no. It's eighty six. Yeah. Well, well, this is what this is what Chat, Chat, Chat GPT is telling me, and mm. I'm trying to dig through these documents. I'm 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 on the right registrations.gov, looking at these dockets and these documents, and pulling up all the supportive supporting material. Um, because this number is somewhere it's it's got to be it's got to be right i think that's my second question is like well yeah i mean this is this is like a fascinating mode of inquiry because part of the reporting i think i read this over at the lever which has been doing such an amazing job is that the part of why so at some point during the obama administration norfolk southern was really championing ironically these new breaks and then when it got became proposed as a regulatory requirement, something shifted in the industry and everyone was like, oh, shit, no, actually, uh, we're going to lobby against this. And under the Obama administration, when they were pushing for some of these safety regulations, the they had done a cost-benefit analysis of on the, on the breaks and decided that there were savings, and that was part of what justified the rule to make it mandatory. Then, under the Trump administration, they re-ran the cost-benefit analysis, took out a bunch of criteria to basically rig the outcome such that it no longer was cost-efficient, ostensibly, for the railroad to be required to change over to the uh, electronic braking system. So getting into the, that, that kind of minutia and like and interrogating how these CBO and, and other kind of uh, estimates are generated and how bias can seep in at that level. The, you know, the bias about how you calculate the value of a life, the bias about how you calculate the likelihood of damage, the contrast between the information that you use to calculate the likelihood of damage and why that information isn't good enough to calculate um, the, 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 the damages themselves. That's like a fascinating contrast. And it would be such a good like nugget for um, an article or a radar or a line of questioning for someone like Mayor Pete. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because his, his department is just doing the same thing under a different administration, you know, same looking cut. Well, this is what I need to look at next is I exactly what Trump's administration reran to, to, to bring down the cost estimate even more because what I believe I'm looking at is the cost-benefit analysis that was run under the Obama administration. And I would not be surprised in the least if the Obama administration's DOT put forth this really shoddy cost-benefit analysis that included this information that I was talking about, you know, how, how we actually quantify the, the value of a human life. What it seems like is the Obama administration put forth this recommendation knowing that it would easily be shot down by industry because um the the argument for the co- the benefit is just not there um what's my point is um, 
I mean, I want to look at all this information, but, and then I guess I'll, I'll wrap up with like, you know, what, what we do with this. I think if a light can be shown on the fact that all of this stuff that we're arguing on really basically says, Hey, Palestine folks, we don't care, you know, or, or these folks, these folks don't consider you in the least bit. Then at the very least we, <laughs> that's an argument for, <laughs> This is this is my 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 fantasy, right? Going back to like force the vote. Give these people health insurance. If we're yeah. going to argue over who's responsible for their their health impacts and we can all agree that they're going to be health health impacts, give them health insurance. So I saw Crystal tweeting about this and she's absolutely right uh that there is this emergency powers uh that the president can do an executive order to promulgate where people who are exposed to all kinds of emergency situations, acts of God, et cetera, he can expand Medicare basically to cover them and give them free health care. So people were arguing in the context of the pandemic that Biden to just, you know, use it as an excuse to give everybody health care. Obviously, he wouldn't be going to do that. But it has happened. Obama did it for some other emergency. I forget where um, some other small community in the United States just granted the whole town free health care for life. And that seems like a real no-brainer, especially since I don't know if you caught any of the coverage of Donald Trump's visit to East Palestine this week and how excited everybody was to see him. And he came bringing all of these provisions that were Trump-branded, and he's holding court at the McDonald's. And people were saying, well, Donald Trump won the Republican primary today because of how presidential he seemed in East Palestine. And they're not wrong. Like, he came off very, very well today. And meanwhile, Pete Buttigieg is just dragging his feet and getting there. And the liberal media's excuse, their, their narrative is to say, well, you know, they, they kind of are anemically saying, well, Donald Trump caused some of these problems. And it's true. But they're not making that kind of really focused, clear message of there were mistakes made under both Republican and Democratic administrations, and we're the administration that's going to fix it. Moreover, here is what we are doing to help this community, like giving you something like free health care. Like that would be huge if Democrats actually cared about winning this messaging battle. But they seem to be more like wanting to take interpersonal snipes that, well, Trump isn't really that great. And Trump is, you know, it's like, look, think about what people are experiencing. There, I saw a, somebody was complaining, one of the people from East Palestine was saying, yeah, they set up these clinics, but... I couldn't get an appointment. It wasn't clear when I was supposed to go. I was concerned about whether I'm not gonna I'm gonna have to pay something out of pocket and all of these kinds of things. Like imagine if you could provide the kind of assurance that said, We are going to make healthcare literally free for me for you. And if you need to drive to the next town and not go to one of these clinics we've set up to just go see any old doctor, you can do so knowing that you were gonna be covered and not have some unexpected charge. That's another for the rest thing. of your life. Like that's another thing I started looking into is all of these corporations that got all of this money from COVID because people couldn't leave their houses to go stay in someone else's property, put these people in those properties, put them up at the Marriott's for free. Like what is <laughs> it's easy moves. This yeah. is, that is something Trump would do. Yeah. Put, put, put all these people up at Trump properties. <laughs> <laughs> is there a like, Trump property in like uh, Southern Ohio or uh, Eastern uh, Ohio, whatever it is? Probably Detroit would be <laughs> the closest, I imagine. And I imagine that because I have a background in supply chain and I just mm. kind of want to run circles around Pete because I'm so sick of them. I'm so sick of 
the, uh, <laughs> you know, we're, we're sick of it all. Okay, Elle, do we need to nominate you to be Marianne's Secretary of Transportation? Because I'm hearing some so, things from you. Actually, again, <laughs> I I can do that. That's something I've considered. Um, I'm just as qualified. You know, I was considering taking the humble route of running for Chief of Staff of Department of Transportation. Mm-hmm. Um, because I've been offered Chief of Staff for a congressional campaign before. Mm. So. Okay, Elle, I see you, Elle. <laughs> okay, well, you I, you definitely need to call back in and let us know what else you've kind of settled upon and figured out after going through these documents and doing the chat GPT thing. Because I will. This is, um, if, this is if, like right on the money. I need to know what you find out. Like I need to know. Okay, okay. Um, yes, I will leave with um, tell your professor he was super great and he should come back on. I will. I'm about to write him just a glowing email that kind of gives him an assortment of all of the wonderful glowing um, comments you guys have left on uh, the Patreon to assure him that he was so well appreciated and that he should make this a regular occurrence. So. Well, maybe maybe he'll hear my, my story of my favorite academic story. I'll leave you with this. I was transferring from... Uh, community college to my state university because I wasn't going to pay all that money to get a degree. And my academic advisor, I was transfer. I had a marketing degree. I was, I thought I was going to study marketing because like you, I was fascinated by commercials. Mm. <laughs> and my academic advisor was like, Hey, Rutgers has this new program, supply chain management, check it out. And I was mm. like, okay. And I did. And I was like, Oh, wow. This is how it all works. Okay. Mm. <laughs> so, mm. yeah. Uh, Marion's, we'll see. I want to run independently. I will run independently of a candidate because I am not. No, I understand. As, you sh- as none of us should tie ourselves to any candidate because a lot's happened since 2020 and we don't have to do it the way we did it in 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, thank you again, Ella. I look forward to hearing your update. I will give you an update, Bree. All right. Keep the faith. Thanks for calling. Keep the faith. All right, Brent, what is on your mind? Oh, and by the way, if you guys are new, I do one from the front and then I skip around to a random person in line. So if you're way far back, don't despair. You could win the lottery. And if you're in the front, don't despair. I will be coming back to the front. Hi, Bree. Hey, Brent. Hey, Pasa. Hi, so... Good, good. So I saw your segment with, um, that you did with Sabrina Savati, and um, Robbie brought up a question about the criticism of the rally. And basically, from what I got from Sabrina's answer, she feels that people that criticize the rally, the speakers, are trying to smear the rally. And my question to you is, can you criticize a rally? yet support the movement that the rally is about at the same time, do you feel that those things could go together? Or do you feel that any criticism is is a, a smear, basically? No, I don't think that any criticism is a smear. I think there are plenty of good faith criticisms. In fact, I think that Sabi made some in the context of her hit on Rising. She said... You know, if she were in charge, there were people that were invited that she would not have invited, um, that she understands why some of the invited speakers were particularly 
controversial and that maybe to such an extent that they were a distraction that wasn't necessary and there might have been even more turnout if you know some of these figures were not involved. However, her approach was to still attend and support the rally and just be clear about what she does agree with and what she doesn't agree with and draw those distinctions on a personal level rather than to try to undermine the effort altogether. And I think I agree with her approach. And I think that she has been open about her criticisms and was willing to say specifically the guests that she didn't agree with and who she wished weren't invited. But, you know, it's, it's, I think she does a really wonderful job of modeling what criticizing without derailing movement energy looks like. And I think other people could also decide, well, I'm not even going to go, right, because I don't want to be even implicitly supporting some of the people there. And I think that's also a perfectly fine decision. But there's a point at which it becomes like everyone who goes is horrible and, you know, talk, you know, telling people not to go and, and, and like smearing everybody who's involved and saying that they are bad faith actors, not just people like Savvy who are trying to make the best of an imperfect situation. I think then you get into a place where it's like, mm, what are you like controlled opposition? Because <laughs> this right. just feels like not productive at all. Right. I, I think the distinction between, cause it's been getting a lot of controversy. I think the diff, there needs to be a distinction between criticism by, by, while at the same time supporting the rally and just flat out trying to uh, derail the rally. Like, I feel like some meet, there's like an, uh, a website specifically trying to derail the rally by saying that people like Jimmy Dore or these people, they, they're, they're pro Russia or whatever because they go on some Russian channel or whatever. Those people, I, those channels I feel are le- legitimately trying to derail the movement altogether. Mm-hmm. But I personally feel that criticizing a speaker for not being anti-war i think is a different we discussed mm-hmm. this last week but i feel like a speaker that's not anti-war i feel like that's a legitimate criticism because mm-hmm. i feel that if if we're trying to get people like in california every most people here if you ask someone on the street they they think that only putin's the bad guy and and President Biden and Obama and all these presidents are just, they're good, innocent players. And it's mm-hmm. just kind of crazy that they think that way. But in order to convince those people to get into the anti-war movement, I think you have to be consistent. And mm-hmm. I was just, I went on Savvy's show and I said that and she, she kind of accused me indirectly that I was trying to smear and I get all, I got all these criticisms like, oh, if why don't you do a rally? You how about you do it better? And I was like, I don't need to do a rally to ha- to voice an opinion about a movement that I support. Like that's sh- like if I go to see a movie and say the the movie sucked, the actors shouldn't be able to say, why don't you make the move? Why don't you act in a different movie, make it better? I feel that criticism is it, it, really not really fair and not I really mean, indu- I- I guess I'm a little conflicted on this one because yeah. yes, certainly there, it is like a weird thing to suggest that one person, you know, like, it, okay, here, here's what it is. Here's what it is. If I, if I were like saying, Hey, this, I, I'm anti-war, but this anti-war rally is horrible. Anybody who goes to it is a Nazi. It's, it's no, disgusting. No. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And, you know, let me tear it down on the internet at the same time that I 
basically, you know, was not support. I guess what I'm saying is, I just, I feel like there's a way, and Sabi, like I said, I think demonstrates this with her criticism of saying, I think this thing could have been done differently, should have been done differently, and is imperfect. And yet, in the absence of an alternative, I continue to support it. And I continue to try to make it better. And I guess I I just keep thinking of the, um, the uh, general strike uh, calls in the conference that we did now, like a couple of years ago, I guess the RBN helped to organize. And there were people who said, well, we're not ready for a general strike and this is stupid. And like actively we're trying to tear it down. And we're thinking at the time, like this like literally doesn't make any sense for one. Nobody is suggesting that this internet panel is in fact a general strike or is going to lead in a direct way to a general strike. It's just an information session about what it would take and what we would have to do to get to that place and what the organizing looks like and maybe seeds for that organizing effort. And because that's all it was, it felt to me very suspicious that somebody would devote that much energy into trying to tear it down. And I guess that's how I feel about the anti-war rally. It's like, what is the magical harm that's going to come from this? If you don't like a speaker, just say it's a free country. No one's mad if you say, I don't like X speaker because they're not actually anti-war. I don't like X speaker because of you know of their criminal history. I don't like the X speaker because I don't believe in their substantive politics. I think that none of that sounds oppish to me. None of that sounds suspicious. It's the people, it's not that I expect someone to have to organize their alternative rally in order to be able to leverage a criticism, but to try to stop something that has positive qualities to it, even if you disagree with the negative qualities, while knowing that there's nothing that's going to fill the, vo- fill the void of having those positive qualities, feels like you're basically saying you'd rather set things backward, you know, than just leveraging your more specific discrete criticisms at the parts that you don't like. I just don't see what's gained by it, especially since, I don't know, like, I just... I just don't see what's gained by it. Right, right. And I would love to attend these. I mean, Washington, D.C. is on the other side of the coast. So it's kind of it was kind of far for me. But um, if there's something closer, but I would love to attend these rallies because I think the I see the homeless problem. It's talked about in the media a lot, but I feel like it's not talked about enough. What you see in the media is not is nothing like what's happening on the like what I see. What the media is covering, it's much worse than what the media is covering. And it's kind of like, why isn't the money used in these wars used? Why isn't even half of it used here at home? It's just the greed of the military industrial complex just gets, it's just crazy. And I feel like the message of the anti-war is a very good one and mm. more people should support it. But if the I, if I just feel that if you want to reach a broad audience to people that aren't even listening, I just feel that it needs to be a consistent message because if they're going to be turned off by the slightest thing, and that's not fair, but, but that's, that's just that's how another people. Thing. If people yeah. are turned off by the slightest thing, don't become people. Like, yeah, it's not people. Just you're talking about you, not you literally. But everyone is like, well, other people aren't gonna like it if other people never even heard of this shit. Like, it barely got right. any attention. You know what I mean? So just like, right. if you don't like it, speak for yourself. But this right. other people excuse, it's bullshit. Like we saw this back in twenty nine in twenty sixteen. Well, other people aren't gonna vote for Bernie, so we shouldn't vote for Bernie. It's a fucking primary. Grow up. 
Just vote for the guy or woman you think is the best candidate and stop trying to do this pundit bullshit where you're predicting everybody else's response as a way to justify your own cowardice and not standing up for your principles. You know what I mean? Right, right. Other people, other people, other people. There's no other people. It's just you. And when you decide not to go or you decide not to support or you decide to criticize it on the Internet, you are under, you're the one that's undermining the conference. The only thing that you can really control is what you do, whether you go, whether you support it. You know, this, this imaginary phalanx of, like, thousands of people that would have showed up if Scott Ritter hadn't been. I don't even know who Scott Ritter is, to be honest, and also he didn't go. Or, like, the idea that, oh, Jackson Hinkle's presence is gonna is like deterring all of these normies who otherwise would be so anti-war. No one knows who Jackson Hingle is. That isn't terminally online, you know? Right. So, so I don't know, I just don't buy that excuse. Right. And if if we're not trying to reach that's totally totally fine too. I mean, if the purpose of the rally is just to get people together and push a message, that's that's good and if it's if that's what it is and I I support it. And um but yeah, you are right. Like if I, I do feel that it's while we should try to reach other people, if we can't, then we can't. And yeah. that's, that's, I mean, that's, that's my idea. Maybe I'm expecting too much of, of this movement and being too unrealistic to expect other people, quote unquote, other people to even listen. That's just probably my, um my fantasy, probably to expect other people to even listen so but i i do support the message and that's why i i continue to come on these shows because they're pushing you guys are pushing a message that nobody else is pushing and well, thanks for calling in brent i appreciate are, that and your engagement on savvy's channel as well all right sure thank you all right keep the faith okay let's go to uh dirk what's on your mind dirk Hi, can you hear me? Loud and clear. All right. Nice to talk to you again. It is a pleasure. What's on your mind tonight? Uh, yeah, I, I, a lot of things, to be honest. Um, I, I just want to, we, we had talked previously, uh, but it, it's been a couple of years since I've actually been able to sync everything up with the technology and have this, you know, get on the call in. And chat, and I think the last time we talked, it was mostly about BoJack Horseman, and uh, <laughs> I was trying to convince you to date himbos, and was following like a actually Jackson Hinkle. <laughs> Funnily enough, <laughs> remember the dating profile episode you did, mm-hmm. where he like shot his shot. Mm-hmm. I think that was the last time we talked. All right, well, then what's on your mind this time I, around? I'm just threading it back, and, uh, you know, I'm glad uh, I have the opportunity to chat once again. Yeah, so what's um, on your mind What's on your mind tonight? Uh, a lot of things. Uh, first, I think we have a mutual friend, um, do you know Vanessa Pope? I don't think so. Vanessa okay. Pope? She said she, yeah, she said she went to Harvard with you. Um, but if you don't know, that's fine. Maybe she made it up. I probably just She just, just had a kid. But... She lives in Malvern, Pennsylvania. Um, 
you guys both talked about your reunion last year uh, going to it. I saw both your Instagram stories. So hmm, I, I don't there was remember any Vanessa's from, from college, but I'm sure it's just my bad memory. But what, what was okay, there something specific that you wanted to talk about? No, I, no, I, I just wanted to make a connection. Cause like, uh, Vanessa was someone that I had, uh, run into when I was like, uh, canvassing for Bernie in Oakland at first Fridays. And, uh, Oh, you know uh, what? I'm looking at this woman's picture and she does look familiar. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what you're looking at. (laughs) I'm just on the phone here with you, but, um, no, she said she knew you. I feel embarrassed now. Um, to even have brought it up. Um, but yeah, no, like, uh, this was someone who said I met in Oakland, can't for Bernie in 2019. Mm. And, uh, I convinced her, like, you know, she should support Bernie. And she mentioned you and said, oh, I know Brianna Joy Gray. I went to Harvard with her uh, back in the day. And I was like, okay, cool. (laughs) Whatever. Um, So I'm I'm sorry. I'll have to reach out to Vanessa and Calling her bullshit, I guess. No, there's no need to do that. I said she looks familiar. It's it's my mistake that I don't have a better memory of college. It was 15 years ago. No one's lying or being dishonest here. There's no need to call anybody out. But I, I'm wondering, <laughs> do you have any other kind of questions and comments about anything that we've talked about today or the episode? No. Well, actually, the reason I wanted to talk to you is uh, you had on Lisa Selen Davis last week, who is a lovely Native American woman who wrote an amazing book called Tomboy. Um, who did I have on last week? Lisa Selen Davis on uh, I had her on Rising. Oh, on Rising. Okay, I'm sorry. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, she wrote this book called Tomboy. Uh, she was recently in this movie, Affirmation Generation. A mm-hmm. friend of mine is a producer on it. Uh, and you guys were talking about the Glad Letter. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Great, I love you, but it, it was really uncomfortable, this interview. You treated her like she was Matt Walsh. I don't think that I did. Yeah. I think I would talk to, I don't know that I would agree to interview Matt Walsh in an eight-minute rising segment, first of all. Well, this wasn't Matt Walsh. This is Lisa Selen Davis. Right, which is why the interview happened. Yeah. And... In the interview that happened, uh, every time she opened her mouth, it reminded me of like, you know, when, when you're having conversations with people about force of the vote, and they keep bringing up Jimmy Dore, right? Like, that's kind of what I saw you doing with this woman. Uh, is I asked her, no, let, let me just tell for the people who didn't listen, this was a woman who was, I don't want to mischaracterize her, but was basically offering, you know, uh, was critical of the glad letter and was offering a kind of 
defense of some of the, you know, the reporting, the gist of the reporting at the New York Times. I never articulated a position, by the way, on, on either the Glad Letter or the position of the New York Times and their union, which I think is like a legitimately difficult position, where the union is supposed to protect the interests of these workers, some of which are writing content that ideologically is offensive to other reporters on the staff and GLAD and some outside groups. And so the, the union is in this weird position where the kind of so-called woke position is like this weird anti-labor position. And how do you thread that needle? And what does it mean for so many New York Times employees to be kind of openly calling for the firing of their coworkers just from a pure employment standpoint? It's very tricky. Okay. So I didn't actually, in the context of that segment or elsewhere, really weigh in because I need more time to articulate my thoughts and that what there wasn't really space for in that segment or now. However, Robbie was there obviously asking a certain kind of questions from political his political perspective. From my political perspective, she seemed like a reasonable person who was not hostile or hateful in the way that Matt Walsh is, who's basically at this point openly calling for murdering trans people in the street. And so I asked her, like, on balance, I'm a little conflicted about what's going on in the, at the New York Times and how the reporting is going down. However, are you at all concerned that some of the reporting in the New York Times has been cited for various propositions, that, uh, including these anti-trans bills that I absolutely do not agree with, that are authoritarian and strike, uh, taking basic rights away from people all over the country, and have people like Matt Walsh saying things like thousands of people, thousands of kids are getting are transitioning every year, or he said like what a million or something crazy kids are transitioning every year when the real number is like 4,000 or 400. I can't remember, but like many orders of magnitude smaller than what he said. That's the weird thing about all of it. Like, I don't understand why you brought Matt Walsh into the conversation at all. Because I'll explain it to you. It's because the, the complaint that people who are supportive of the glad letter and who are critical of the New York times coverage have is that they are presenting a skewed, a skewed vision of how common transition is among minors, how common detransition is, in other words, people who regret having made that decision. And therefore, the, the gravity of the so-called crisis is arguably, this is the argument that's being made, being blown yeah. out of proportion by the New York Times and reporting like that. So I want to ask someone who seems like they don't have it out to just kill every trans person in the street like Matt Walsh, whether even if they are critical, as she was, of the glad letter, they have any concerns about people like uh, about people like Matt Walsh relying on reporting from The New York Times to create this perception that there's this huge crisis of tra- of kids being transitioned prematurely and in a way that I ultimately regret. And she said that, yeah, like, I, I think that Matt Walsh is a bad spokesperson for the movement. And it does give me concern. And I said, oh, I appreciate that answer. Did you so what's the problem? Up with that line of questioning on your own, or did you farm it out to somebody else? Yeah, I, I tend to make up my own questions, sir. I don't tend to do much farming out. I got a, a couple of brain cells between these ears that I tend to rely on every no, now I, and I'm again. I'm asking because, honestly, like, it's not, you know, the impression I get is that, like, when it comes to trans questions, your approach is, it's like, it's not my lane, and... Yeah, if it were me, I would not have had that guest on or had that topic because ultimately it's not my bag. It's none of my business. I don't have any expertise, and it's not my passion in politics 
There's there's people dying, including trans people, of poverty and precarity and environmental pollution and poison and every other kind of thing. And I don't want to be contributing in the way that I think that sometimes the New York Times does to the perception that this issue involving a very small portion of the population in which 90% of the time works out for the benefit of all of those involved is some kind of national crisis. So, so you, yes, you, no, you I would not have chosen to talk about it at all. <laughs> 4,000 kids who are you know, potentially sterilized is, is not... What are you it's talking about potentially sterilized? Already you're losing credibility. Based on what? I, I'm sorry. If you trans, if you're this transition what... and you want to make sure that you have the ability to have biological children later, you can freeze your eggs. You can freeze your sperm. There are ways to preserve your ability. to. So this isn't really about sterilization or your ability to have kids. This is about a obsession with what people's genitals look like. Just own it. Uh, oh, hold on. This is, this is cr- you, you, most people don't have the money to freeze their eggs. That's incredible. Most people don't have the money to get transition surgery. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Why, why are you yelling at me? Because like, I, I find I, this to be very, very frustrated. You come on here, you filibuster for a while. It's not clear what you're talking about. Uh, then at one point, I, I really pushed you to ask a specific question. And you accuse me of somehow being unfair to a guest who I think I was frankly very generous with, considering what my actual personal feelings are about the subject at hand. I thought what she seemed like a nice lady who, who maybe had it was a, we had a good faith disagreement on how to approach trans issues. We had a good faith disagreement about the scale of the so-called crisis. So I asked her a question. I didn't, I didn't ask her to give up any of her beliefs. I simply asked her that since she is not Matt Walsh, and because there's a, a significant and obviously observable gap between her and Matt Walsh, if she is concerned about the argument that's being made about the glad letter in the New York Times, yeah. that there is a way that the narrative as pushed by people like Matt Walsh and arguably in some ways the New York Times is making her the case that she's trying to make, which is a more narrow one about, well, our guidelines about how much you know counseling needs to happen before a minor transitions a little out at a step with the current science. And should we move closer to where Norway and Scandinavia are at right now where they're, there's a little, they're a little more circumspect. Okay. That's not Matt Walsh. That's, I don't know exactly enough to weigh in on that, but like that seems like a, maybe a reasonable position to take. Given that's the case, how does she feel about the fact that there are arguments being made in the New York Times and by Matt Walsh that are basically undermining her ability to make a more narrow case? And she did not seem to have any problem with that line of questioning. She agreed that Matt Walsh is bad for her political movement. And I said, great. So if I don't have a problem with it and she doesn't have a problem with it, I'm just really struggling to, to understand what your problem is with it. I, my problem is just that you were, I mean, Bree, I, I, I listen to you a lot. Like you are someone who I find to be a light uh, in, in this dark political environment. And I'm, I'm sorry. I, I didn't expect this call to go this way. Like I, I've been waiting to talk to you all day about this because I think it's important. You know, you have like these Leo vibes that like are so generous and caring and you can, you know, give people room, people you disagree with, you, you are able to give them room to express whatever it is that they're trying to say that might be important. 
and step back and engage with them. And it's, it's a real talent. And I, I enjoy watching you do it. And I love it. And I it was upsetting to me to like, see this person whose book I, I've, you know, I'm two thirds of the way through, I haven't finished it yet, but wrote a really well thought out book about gender and how it developed as an idea into the 20th century and where we're at now. An incredibly thoughtful woman. And I, I feel like you didn't treat her fairly. And that's all I'm on the phone. I'm sorry you feel that way. I encourage everybody to go to listen to the interview because I think I treated her very fairly with a significant amount of grace. And she seemed to feel that way after the interview. And I, I don't know. I don't know that you get to assume her position and speak on her behalf here because that wasn't the impression I got from the end of the interview. I genuinely appreciated what she had to offer. I think I, I asked her a completely fair question. Yeah. And if we have a difference of opinion about that, I guess we're just going to have to live with that. But I, right, I strongly encourage everybody this. to go like, and listen to the interview like, and judge for had, themselves. She appeared in a movie called a uh, documentary called Affirmation Generation. And, uh, you know, a friend of mine is a producer on this movie. She didn't mention it on the call, but this is something that went up on Vimeo on Saturday. Uh, and it is about this issue of like, you know, detransitioners. And this is something that is going to inevitably happen. Like if we are going forward on this path where medicalization of transness is, is going to happen, there are going to be a, some portion of the population that is going to regret making decisions to take hormones and drugs and, and nobody's so talking about it. And, and so what's like the nobody's talking about there? the dangers there. And you look, 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 some women lie about rape. And so you, what are we going to do about really that? That's really weird to like put those two things in the same category. Why? It's literally the same thing. Most rape accusations so wait, are wait, wait, real. Wait, wait. You're saying a person who regrets taking drugs to change their gender is morally equivalent to someone who lies. No, you raped? said morally equivalent. And I got to say, I'm getting very tired of your weird straw men and projection. I'm asking. So you're not asking. You're not asking. You stopped asking oh, yeah, a long time ago. You made up your mind and you're making, you're projecting weird things onto me in a way that it feels like we're not really getting much of the way. If you were interested in understanding my analogy, you would have let me finish it instead of interrupting me to tell me immediately why it was so inappropriate and quote morally objectionable. Okay. I'm, I, right? I, I apologize. Please. Okay. So the point of the analogy is not to make a moral equivalency. But to say, of course, it is true that some people lie about rape and the people who are lied about suffer enormous consequences for it. We saw with the Duke lacrosse case. That stuff happens. It's real. And it's really shitty for the people who are wrongly accused. And they deserve to have coverage over the fact that they are wrongly accused. And we shouldn't bury those news stories because it's inconvenient to the reality that the overwhelming majority of rape accusations are authentic and, in fact, are not believed because the minority of cases happen to be false accusations. That sucks and it's unfair and it puts journalists in a weird position of how much attention do you pay to the minority case if it gives a public perception 
that there is a crisis when in fact the crisis is in the other direction. The crisis is in fact that most rape cases are never prosecuted and never solved. And okay. I think that's a, a fitting analogy for what's going on here with the transit. I think that when this all first emerged with the Jesse Single article and stuff, there's a legitimate case for the idea that within the community, because it's so difficult to transition and trans people face such an uphill burden, that no one really wanted to talk about detransitioners because no one wanted to give folks who wanted to make it harder for folks to transition that energy to make it even harder for folks that knew what they wanted to do what they wanted to do and to get the medical help that they wanted. But does that put people who legitimately would have liked some resources to figure out how to make better decisions for themselves in a tough spot because we're basically collectively deciding to have a media shutdown, a media blackout on these stories that are very much in the minority but are, you know, real. And now we have a whole media ecosystem where conservatives, because of their political agenda, are so eager to highlight the stories of detransitioners that you have people who were not really even detransitioners, people who were never really transitioned to the fir in the first place, making representations about their experiences in order to capitalize on a right-wing hate machine. And so it's even more unfair to the people who sincerely did just make a mistake and detransition or change their mind and detransition. So, yes, I think there's, a, there's some legitimate issues there to discuss that are difficult from a journalistic perspective, which is why I asked the woman on the show, even if there are legitimate concerns about detransitioners, how do you feel, how do you want to approach talking about that, knowing that it creates this crazy public perception of there being this huge crisis, as evidenced by the fact that Matt Walsh literally didn't even know how many people detransition every year? and was off by an orders of magnitude thousands and thousands of millions. And she gave an intelligent, thoughtful answer to that. And I felt like it was a good interview. I'm very sorry that you felt differently, but I think we got to move on to another caller. I really appreciate you calling in. All right, Dirk. Bree, I, I love you. I'm still going to follow you and you're still on my Patreon. Um, there's there's a lot more to this and i i would just say you know look in your heart this woman deserved better than what you gave her just uh on a personal level i hope you reach out to her okie doke i won't but thanks for calling in and your opinion is registered thanks dirk lysol what's on your mind tonight <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry that was too good what is what is what are, what are you thinking and feeling? What's burbling up in your your thought castle? Oh, I mean, it's it's funny. I was gonna I was gonna mention trans stuff, but not in a direct way. But um, I just want to give you your flowers for taking that guy down because he was the fucking parody of himself. Look, I'm not trying to take anybody down. I'm obviously frustrated, but mostly because it was a really friendly interview, and I'm a little sick of being gaslit over it. <laughs> it was a legitimately friendly interview and i had no animus toward this woman whatsoever and it's just crazy like i feel like i've just been gaslit for 15 minutes <laughs> no yeah that's what happened definitely Whew. okay but it anyway. started out super smooth and just kind of like like non-confrontational and all of a sudden it took a turn like i thought he was making he was making it sound like he didn't like matt walsh at the beginning but then by the end he was his biggest fan well i don't think that he does like matt walsh i think he likes this woman who was not matt walsh like I do think people do the issue a disservice when they conflate like Jesse Single and Matt Walsh and, 
you know, um, even even J.K. Rowling and Matt Walsh, there's like meaningful room between J.K. and Walsh. And there's even more meaningful room between a reporter like Jesse, who, again, you can be mad at for like being the equivalent of a reporter who talks too much about men who lie about rape or women who lie about rape. But who I think has also been charged with a lot of stuff that doesn't really stick and doesn't really isn't really fair. So, like, I do think that collapsing all these people together discredits folks who are who are trying to, um, you know, push push back against the worst of it all. And at a certain point, you can seem kind of irrational and like you're not really willing to engage in debate or really hear what's being said because you're pretending like all these kinds of people are the same people. And that I am conscious of that and did not do that to this woman. That woman was not Matt Walsh. My question wouldn't make sense if I thought she was Matt Walsh because it was basically given that you're not Matt Walsh, given that obviously your position is much more moderate than Matt Walsh's, what do you have to say? Like what is your opinion on the fact that all of this like – crazy stuff is being said out there in a way that makes people not want to listen to you. So like, that's it. We don't have to keep belaboring the point though. I want to know what you initially wanted to call and talk about. Oh, um, so I, uh, so one of my other favorite podcasts is death panel. They kind of talk about disability rights, ableism and COVID through like the lens of communism. And they had a really good interview with a woman named, uh, Vicki Osterweil about the New York times, um, Mm. about the New York Times coverage and kind of like the history going back, you know, covering, you know, the, the way they covered in the in the 80s with AIDS and just kind of like mm. really fascinating stuff about like the history of disability rights activists. I was going to recommend them to come on your show because I know I know the stuff again? about the brain pills has been a big uh, kind of like a big deal. So remind me the name of the podcast. Death panel. Kind of like making fun of the Republicans thing on uh, healthcare. Yeah, they, uh, the, one or two of the authors just wrote a book. Uh, they released it last year called Health Communism. Cool. All right. Yeah. I've definitely seen this podcast logo before. I must have listened to an episode. Oh, I'm following them. Okay, cool beans. Yeah, they're really incredible. And then um, also just give, give you your flowers for this. I mean, this episode was incredible. I feel like I learned a lot. And... Um, it was kind of thing of like, I wonder how they're going to tie this into regulatory capture. And literally your next question is about regulatory capture. <laughs> yeah, I felt a little bit, I felt a little scattered, but it was just because like every time he said something, I was like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I was having like crazy flood of memories. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, I learned so much from him and I felt like, how are we going to get it all out? And I'm glad we got a good chunk of it out, but we'll have to have him back. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it reminded me of, I'm, I'm still in contact with my favorite uh, professor, I graduated in like 2007 ish. And, um, yeah, just like, I, I can still think back to like specific quotes he said in class when like the rest of my college experience was mostly a blur. So I feel you on that. Yeah. Yeah. He kind of dropped the part about being a situationist at the end. And I was, I was curious more about the intersection between what he was saying and being a situationist. Yeah. I mean, that's like a whole other thing we could have gotten into. Um, he has, there's a situationist blog, if I recall correctly. His, his Twitter handle is like the situationist. I mean, that's like his main bag. So some of that stuff about like the Irish immigrant case and asking people to consider the kind of social posture of the litigants and how that's affecting how the court is reading the case and what the outcomes are. Because all these outcomes, the thing about law school that made me really hate it one a year, especially, is sitting in these classrooms, seeing how like the outcomes of the cases are so subjective and having nothing to do with 
anything rem remotely objective when it comes to reasoning, especially in contracts. Contracts is like, oh, I guess I'm just going to just sit here and memorize what happens because there's no way to reason your way through this. It's just completely random. <laughs> um, and feeling like so dejected. But then taking Hansen's class and having kind of like a, not just that, not, uh, taking it from being just me feeling it's unfair because I can't remember things on exams <laughs> to channeling that into, yeah, like the legal system is really capricious and rigged was very cathartic. Um, so yeah, maybe we'll, maybe we'll talk about some more of that law and psychology stuff next time he's on. Yeah. Um, train of thought. Nope. Two stones lost it. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. You said you had something else to say about trans stuff. Maybe that was it. Oh, no, no. It was, it was recommending that, the, that podcast. Oh, that uh, episode. Yeah. 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 The guest they had Vicki Osweiler, who also, um, or Austin Weiler. She also wrote a book called in defense of looting. Uh, Wikipedia says she argues looting is a tool that results in positive change to society and looting helps redistribute property and wealth in an unequal society. Uh, it's based, it was, she wrote it in response to the Ferguson, uh, uh, the Ferguson unrest. Oh, that very much sounds like my bag. I'm right? I am interested. I am intrigued. You should just get the cover of the book and just put it, put it next to Robbie and see what he says. <laughs> oh man. I don't know that that's a conversation for rising. I'm not trying to lose all of my credibility by taking some <laughs> stand on looting. I don't know. I don't know that that's the space for it, but it's definitely a good one for, um, for bad faith. So I appreciate you calling in Lysol. Yeah, for sure. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. Um, let's go to uh, Britain because I don't remember this name or face and I think it might be a first time caller. What's on your mind tonight, Britain? <clears throat> hey, Brianna, thanks for uh, taking my call. Um, I just had a few things to talk about. Um, so I live in Korea and I've been trying to call you, um, but I teach, so I'm usually mm. busy, but I'm really happy I got to call you. Okay, <clears throat> me too. So I was listening to the MMT episode and um, thinking about money um, and growing up, I got to travel a lot. Um, so I got a lot of opportunities to see the world and um when I was living in the Gulf in Bahrain, I saw like a lot of um, of the migrant workers and how unequal society was. And it really got me into leftism and wanting to make the world more equal. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, when I moved back to the U.S., I was uh, canvassing for Bernie in South Carolina. And um, so uh, I, I really was worried because I, I don't think I was making a big impact on the people there. Uh, with my uh, canvassing. So anyway, after that, I was really disillusioned with all the way, uh, all the ways Bernie got screwed in the election. And anyway, so now I'm in, I've been in South Korea for five years. And um, I just, I, I hear a lot of callers call in who live abroad and they say, why don't you just move? Things are so much better. So do you think it's better to like really fight for change in the U.S. or just move to other countries? Like in the in Korea right now, like even though I'm making like less money, there's so, uh, so many more benefits to living here. Like the public, you don't need a car, which is amazing. 
uh, there, there's trains and really good public transportation. There's public health care, which really helped me because I needed a brain surgery. Mm. And um, just so I, I think with money, uh, even if you get like stimulus and stuff, it, if you can't like use how you, do, you don't have a society where you can um, feel uh, like you have services and things like that. It's, is it really better? So I don't know. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, I mean, I know it's like not a popular take and it's like a privileged take or what have you to say, oh, I'm leaving the country when some shit goes down. Oh, Trump won, I'm leaving America. Like, I understand that if you tweet that, people get mad and I understand why. Mm-hmm. I also sort of feel like you get one life on this planet and if you have the means and you have needs like your healthcare needs and you can get the hell out of Dodge and figure out how to live and survive and not feel like you're in a constant struggle, then mm-hmm. I'm not going to begrudge somebody for that. There are also a lot of other reasons that people move, you know, abroad that don't mean that you're like abandoning America, that you're abandoning a fight or you're somehow just checked out politically just because you're no longer living in the country. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, I think it's, it's, you know, fighting and caring and leaving the country are not mutually exclusive. Right. I was reading a Vice article about how a lot of debt, they call them debt refugees, people who have student debts moved Mm -hmm. to Germany. And uh, that's, they were like, they were quote unquote, I guess, PMC, but they still were like struggling and um it's kind of like i don't know uh i feel like yeah like you say you only get one life and uh i i'm i turning i'm 31 and i just feel like how much longer like i want i want to keep canvassing and supporting uh left candidates but i just don't know how how long it's going to take and, uh, you know, so, um, yeah, uh, thanks for taking my call. And <laughs> that's all I had to say. Oh, and shout out to your professor, because I listen to you all the time. And I love how you talk. And if ha- he's the reason you talk like that, and shout out to him. So thank you so much. <laughs> You're thank so cool. you. All right. Bye. All right. Bye. Thanks for calling in. It's been a, pl- a pleasure. Uh, Jam, my man, how goes it? What's on your mind? What's good, Bree? How you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm hanging in. <laughs> how are you? Uh, What's on your mind today? Uh, uh, I'm making it, like, busy. Um, right now, I'm uh, editing an episode uh, for, like, the podcast. What I've been doing has been really fun, like, going back. Oh, to yes. Oh, I need to respond to you. Yes, you I do. I'm you on Twitter right now. <laughs> Look, like episode, I'm, let me tell you the list of okay. people who are mad at me right now because I have been completely off the grid. Oh, look at your cute little Jordy LaForge uh, profile pic. Oh uh, yeah, like I told you, uh, Lavar, like everything, like uh, everything to me because because uh, um because him and uh in Star Trek, like that Star Trek changed my life when I when I was uh, when I was a kid. Like it was, it was um super super uh, important to me. Yeah, yeah very, I'm, very much. I'm with you. Couldn't agree more. Um, but okay, yeah. so I just responded to your DM, but now also, yeah. uh, so you're saying the podcast and stuff is going well. 
What what else is on your mind tonight? Um, uh, first I want to ask you, um, how's your like your workout stuff been going? Because I know I know you've been you've been trying to hit it. Okay, so I've I've I'm like on a incredible streak of uh, closing all of my rings every day. Um, I can't even tell you. I'm, that's part of why I'm gonna have to get out of here by eleven because I still got to do another like a uh, hundred and thirty calories to close my movement ring. And I, I haven't, I, I got confess yesterday or was it yesterday or the day before day before yesterday was the first day of the new year that I didn't go to the gym. I did close my rings because yeah. I've been walking home and stuff, but I was, it was like four o'clock. I just finished my radar. I was exhausted and I just went to bed <laughs> and I'm feeling really like guilty that. about it. But like, also like I moved, like I closed my rings. Does it matter yeah, that if I performatively like ran one mile mm. and like sweat? I don't know. I have mixed feelings about it. I'm like feeling a little guilty about it. But on the whole, the exercise has been good. It was a beautiful 80 degree day in DC today, and I didn't get a chance to run because I overbooked myself today, and I'm a little mm. irritated by that as well. You got a jump rope? Other days. I'm sorry. Yeah, do you got a, Do you got a jump rope? Um, I do, but I I'm mean, gonna have a gym in my building. I just prefer to go and run. I feel you. It'd be like that sometimes, but um, you've been correlated to the show. Like you've been on a roll. Like these last few episodes has been, um, particularly uh, the one we talk about, like economics and everything has been so informative and just, just real, like, real like to the money, uh, literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoyed. Um, I can't remember her name. I think it was like Stephanie or something. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about MMT. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed and uh, found it super like useful and how she was talking about like the debt and the economy and everything. Cause um, it kind of like reaffirmed some of like some things that like that I maternalized um, and was thinking about like the economy myself and thinking like a lot of like the shit is like fake, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. how money, like we can just pretty much do what we want. Um, do what we want with our money and like with our debt. And even though it's still one question I don't feel like got answered that you brought up a lot was um, when you were trying to, when you were really trying to uh, figure out, okay, like it's been said that we can have too much debt, you know, mm-hmm. like that can be a problem. So like, but like, how do we actually like determine that number? I feel mm-hmm. like that point was still kind of like skirted over. I don't mm-hmm. feel like that was answered as like directly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something I think I think about a lot because I and honestly I don't think that that's actually like an issue because of like you no know, like real deal shit like our military mm-hmm. and like and how our military is so so big like globally like nobody's it's like the rest of the world going to like buy into like the U.S. you know like tanking economically and not have you know the, the, the U.S. military like behind them. And I don't I don't feel like that's going to be like a thing in the you know in, yeah, in the real me, world. Me too. I guess the reason I keep asking it though is because I feel like it's a credibility issue because yeah. it's hard enough for people to swallow the idea that the economy doesn't act like a household economy, but mm-hmm. people know that inflation does happen. And they exactly. want to, they need, there needs to be some story that can't just be a void. It's like, okay, well, then what causes inflation? Why mm-hmm. is sometimes, you know, the spending a problem? Are you telling me that none of the spending around the COVID bill had anything to do with the inflation that happened the following year? Like at a certain point, mm-hmm. it stretches credulity. Like it, it, it's beyond belief. And so you need a substitute story like, okay, yeah, I admit that it can cause inflation, but only under these circumstances. And earlier when I referenced something about a bridge, 
and another podcast she gave to not me interview she mm-hmm. gave, you know, I would listen to, she was explaining it by talking about like, well, it matters. It, is the money being spent in a way that's like efficient or circulating through the economy as opposed to like sitting in a bank. Yeah. Um, and that's why the bridge was an analogy for like redundancy. Like, is it just going to some rich person who puts it in their bank account and then devalues all the other dollars or is mm-hmm. it being like spent in, into the economy? But, like, again, obviously, I don't really, I can't remember. And I only understood it for, like, probably the end of that run I was on on the treadmill listening to that podcast. <laughs> yeah, like, I get all that. Like, like, like when, we just, when, you were, when you two were, like, going, like, going through that and everything, like, I was under, I was understanding that. But I feel like, because there's no been, there's never been a point in time in history where so many other countries and so many other um, economies around the world depended, depended on another another um country for their for their safety and everything and that's like how the u.s is like in the world where everybody you know like europe the european nations don't really move you know, militarily like without us you know so like with that being like with that being the case like is there actually uh is there actually a um is there actually an actual risk of like our economy like blowing up you know where like the rest of the world pretty much you know overlook like if the u.s dollar gets like devalued like too much because everybody has to buy in on you know like on the value of like the dollar for that mm-hmm. like, you know hold its power and everything i don't think that's a, a actual like credible credible thing that's that's gonna that can happen you know and everybody when people talk about you know like the debt and everything like that part that point is never you know brought up and then i feel like it needs to be because we're in a global economy you know Mm-hmm. So if if that's so if that's being the case then every other every other thing you know every other like worry about the um the debt getting too big is kind of like nonsensical or it doesn't really, like really matter it's all like thre- theoretical you know yeah I mean that's another thing I think I would have liked to have gotten into a little bit more which is like how much of this is only true because we're America yeah how much exactly of it is, is only true because everybody else is invested in our premacy because they exactly. all have they hold so many of our dollars and you know, what happens if the um, unipolar economic reality disappears. And so I, I think that that's a really good line of questioning for the next time she comes back on the podcast for sure. Yeah. You know, cause like, we're not like Zimbabwe, you know, when they printed too much money and like, and stuff like we're not like the rest of the world, they don't have like a stake in the rest of the world, you know, like, and like even we do. That, so like, it doesn't really matter nothing. Even the Zimbabwe thing, someone, was it Fidel? Like somebody else explained that that wasn't even just about printing too much money too. Mm -hmm. That was about uh, all the like money going only to like senior officials and army officers. And it was like a, it was an an equitable distribution issue. I forget now. Oh, Jonathan's (laughs) telling me that's correct. So we're on the right Mm -hmm. track. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so, uh, so but that episode, like, in all, was you know very informative. Uh, really loved it. This episode was cool. Um, the biggest thing I think everything you guys were uh, talking about, you know, pretty much felt, um, pretty much felt like it was like really natural. Our, our ideas and stuff, I pretty much like came to myself, um, too. But the thing that I took the most from was um, the professor really explaining what like tort law is. And really like breaking down and making that very like accessible. Like I really uh, appreciated that. And um, the idea of how to change of, well, not even like how to do it, but just talking about changing, um, changing liabilities to be more on companies. Mm-hmm. Cause that's something I don't feel like, um, I don't feel like uh, we talk, we talk enough about, you know, like uh, really trying to pinpoint 
um, where liability, where liability stands, uh, uh, you know, within our greater, within our greater like economy and uh, society. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I remember again. This is one of those things where it's like we're talking. I was talking to her. And I was like, Brianna, don't bring this up because it's going to be a whole frolicking detour. Brianna, keep your mouth shut. This isn't an <laughs> exercise, and you proving how much you remember from class. You fucking nerd. Just ask the questions <laughs> that are germane to the conversation. But one of the things that were on, was on my mind was that I remember he did this like kind of like a Punnett square. If you remember those from taking bio or genetics, mm-hmm. where he had like a square for each different kind of liability. And so, you know, strict liability, like he was talking about, is basically like anything goes wrong, uh, were you harmed? Okay, the company has to pay. Like you're not asking any questions. <laughs> like it doesn't matter if like they were negligent. It doesn't matter if like you were contributorily negligent. It doesn't matter like if it was an act of God and they never could have predicted it and it was nobody's fault really. Like they were doing something, it hurt you, you have to pay. And that idea was that, like, maybe that applies to, like, the most hazardous of activities because the consequences are so significant. If someone's going to do something that hazardous for profit, then they should have to be so careful because they know they're always going to be on the hook because otherwise we don't want people doing stuff that hazardous. But there are these other liability standards that maybe are more appropriate for different kinds of circumstances. Mm-hmm. And, like, we, we went through them and, like, we're playing these games about, like, what would happen – well, what happened if actually was just basically some version of strict liability all the time. And I think the name of it was like enterprise liability and it was a little bit different, but like not meaningfully so. And, I, and those exercises were so interesting because it really challenged our perceptions of who should pay and why. And, and it made you realize how much all of us have bought into this idea of choice and, and assumed risk because yeah. some, some of our instincts will be, well, should they always pay? Is it really their fault? And it's way easier to wrap your mind around if someone's like transporting toxic ooze, but maybe a little bit less, like a little bit more difficult to wrap your brain around if you're talking about like a car. Yeah. You know, okay, well, should every time someone get in, gets in a car accident, they can sue the pants off a Nissan? Well, <laughs> no, maybe there needs to be a little bit more going into that. You know, was yeah. I using the, pro- like, this is a whole like thing in products liability. Is there something mm-hmm. inherently dangerous about the product? Am I using the product the way that it was supposed to be used? Were the instructions on how to use the product actually clear? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, even if it's an inherently dangerous, you know, if it's an, maybe it's an inherently dangerous product like a cooking knife, but, you know, it has to be dangerous in that way to be effective. Like I can't sell a blunt knife. So are you really going to say mm-hmm. that I'm liable as a knife company every time somebody cuts themselves? You know, the, these are the kind of questions you go through. Yeah. It's a really useful exercise because I think that intuitively we all do get to a place where we understand what's fair, but that's not where the law is. Yeah, because it made me think more like it, it reminded me a lot of like my approach to when talking to a lot of people like about guns, mm-hmm. um, you know, like where like hold like the liability. And it, it speaks a lot to how, how like I take my approach to like um to like guns, the guns rights and everything where I'm more so on. I want people I, I think what I think the most like effective thing to get past like quickly would be like limiting like magazine sizes mm-hmm. and stuff like that to go after to go after manufacturers like in a way to to try like decrease decrease like the um like the danger of like of the object uh, object itself like like I said like lower like um reducing magazine sizes you can even throw like a caveat for like for the right saying like unless you're in like uh, a militia that's to you know like regulated and everything mm-hmm. and um also having like to say like th- I told I talked about to you about this before having thumbprints on um on weapons and everything and have like a reg- uh, 
I have a um so that can that can be more tied to to being registered to a person and like have like that be a, like a lock on the gun that would drastically to uh, cut down like a lot of killings and everything. Mm-hmm. But that's just a way of in thinking of how to you know shift liability and go towards go towards like you know um regulating the thing uh, more. Also, look, let's talk about guns because the gun lobby has been real intense about not wanting there to be any liability for mass shootings and stuff. So, look, what would the world look like? How much? How would the regulations around gun sales change if gun manufacturers were liable for mass shootings? Would they continue to make guns? That could be so easily could, like shoot multiple rounds in automatic or semi-automatic ways that can mow down large groups of people if they had to pay a certain amount for every person who was murdered as a consequence mm-hmm. of their weaponry used, you know, in these civilian contexts. Would the price of bullets go up if they had to pay for every time their bullet ended up killing some kid in a, in a, in a preschool? Yeah. You know, like it's, you know, there, it's, a, it's an interesting way to think about the law. Yeah, I get it. that's why, like, in thinking that way, like, that's why, um, more so, like I said, for, like, regulating, regulating, like, magazine, magazine size, you know, to, um, to help, like, limit, to limit and, um, like, prevent that. You know, I think that's, like, a very, like, sensical way, because when most people end up talking about, um, regulating guns, it's, like, for people on the right, they just think, oh, they're trying to, trying to take our guns away. Uh, you know, and people, people like, uh, what's his name from, uh, Texas, uh, uh, Beto, yeah, Beto, oh, better Beto, uh, saying like, oh yeah, I want to take, like, want to take your guns away and stuff, you know, want to take away like the AR fifteens uh, and everything mm-hmm. that that like push pushes that pushes that um you know pushes that like narrative like for people for people on the right and then there's no there's no real there's no real conversation of okay well but what what can we do to actually you know like regulate and like change stuff like and I hate like the I hate the conversations around when it comes up about like mass shootings because it's always end up talking about always end up talking about like um like the bigger like the bigger events of you know with mass shootings like even though i understand because it's so like sensational sensational and everything but we it's like always the the violence that happens that happens like in the hoods and everything it's always like overlooked and it only gets brought up when it's, it's like to like to deflate you know, to deflect you know like a point you know mm-hmm. somebody else is uh, bringing up you know, I feel like the same way. And it, it makes me feel like, um, like black people, like we get in, like we get in, like scapegoated, like the same way we talk about uh, fucking like education. You know, like when people bring up, um, because uh, there's a lot of black people right now that's moving more towards like the school choice thing because we're getting fucked over like in public by public schools. You know, mm-hmm. I'm I'm kind of like in between on it. But mm-hmm. when we, like, people bring that up, like. Like more so, people on the left just talk nothing but like, oh yeah, we need to just fund public schools and public schools that don't really like talk about the issue. And in the meantime, you know, like it's, it's us that's getting like fucked over, you know, um, and everything. So, mm-hmm. it's, so it's, it gets kind of it's kind of, get, it gets kind of weird for me talking about um, you know, like mass shootings, uh, like in that in that aspect because that part always you know always comes up. That's why I'm so big on really want to talk about actual solutions, you know, like we can do. You know, like to actually like, cause most, cause most gun crimes is, you know, uh, handguns, you know, most, um, most deaths, you know, come from handguns. That's the, that's the biggest thing, you know, when we had those handguns, got the most laws on them, like already. So obviously just having, I, I feel like just more laws on them 
is it on on the gun like more legislation around the guns themselves instead of mm-hmm. going to like the manufacturers is mm-hmm. is it going to be you know is it going to be uh, long as long as because we're in, since we're in a federal like uh, system it's not going to work like if, mm-hmm. uh, if uh, Illinois can have like a thousand gun mm-hmm. laws but they can just go out to Kentucky and just get, get a gun like you know mm-hmm. like it's cheese and it don't fucking matter you know a hundred percent I always yeah. enjoy um your insights when we're having conversations about uh gun control jam it's it's refreshing to talk to someone who has a little bit more exposure than a lot of the folks in my world yeah, I'm, frankly I'm talking to so. talk to people about like about guns almost every day because people love like to just come up randomly like talk to me about it because like my gun group and i'm in the conversations with a lot of like black sheriffs and mm. stuff and it's another thing i don't which i really want to I don't know if it's like this would be an episode four, maybe like next time uh, um, I'm on with you can really like talk about like solutions for policing because I get so tired of fucking hearing, you know, everybody just bring up the problems with police, bring up the problems of the criminal justice system. But we're not actually talking about solutions, you know, like what's something that we that, you know, a community can do within or like a one to five year, you know, like window, like what's something that can like be done Like we don't talk about like, all right, setting up, setting up, um, uh, sheriff departments within like smaller communities to encourage more, to encourage more um, community uh, policing and cut out so much of so much more of like the violence, like from police, because like with the area that I'm from uh, mm-hmm. in Detroit, it's like a, a suburb. Um, it's like two suburbs real close. And all the people, most of the people in those police departments are like from the community. So and it's hard. It's, it's, it's a lot less of it's a lot less of like police or like, brutality it's still be a lot of fucking bullshit but it's just a lot less you know like people getting like brutalized physically like by the police because like everybody fucking know each other like mm-hmm. we go they go to like the same church and everything like we, we everybody goes to the same school and shit so mm-hmm. um like and people don't know like the avenues to do, to do something like to create that you know like using like the cops grant to end up creating your own of uh, a uh, police of uh, police um a precinct so you can get because most of the crime is from police officers that come to neighborhoods that's not fucking from the neighborhoods they have no buy-in into it you know mm-hmm. and so it's feel like more like an evading force but we don't like i said we don't really talk about solutions but i, I don't want to take up too much uh too much time i feel like uh, that's a conversation for for another time yeah look maybe maybe that's a good prompt for me to go ahead and try to put together some kind of like community policing police reform style um episode so thanks thanks for flagging mm-hmm. that for me jam and always it's a pleasure uh, most definitely. I'm going to hit you back on Twitter. All right. Okay. Looking forward to it. Take care. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. All right. A writer. What's in your mind tonight? Writer with what looks like maybe a Shiba Inu. Is that a Shiba Inu? Yeah. How are you doing with your uh, little badass dog? Those Shiba Inus have a reputation. <laughs> They're adorable, though. Are you with us, Ryder? Can you unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind tonight? Hello. Can you hear me? Hello. I can hear you. Sorry about that. No worries. Um. So I had three-ish things. Um. <laughs> first, I really enjoyed the the talk today. I'm a couple couple glasses of wine. <laughs> to my own law school you guys experience. Are- Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, but I just I really like your kind of legal professor. You're breaking up a little bit. 
uh, there. I'm not sure if you're on the move rider or where you are. Um, so that was, uh, hello, Ryder. One of the things that I've been looking for in terms in the, the left and kind of like the looking for guidance in terms of forming my own opinion and things like that is more along the intellectual property realm of the left and really would appreciate some sort of episode on that because it seems like as a someone who like enjoyed or maybe not enjoyed but like took some like trademark law classes and things like that um it seems like such a like a soft power Mm -hmm. soft power creep um in terms of like I, i saw like just like as one example like a news article recently where there was like use talks about using brain scans and stuff in trademark law litigation about like how like and I just go think about like how even like a middle millisecond or a couple of milliseconds of more like thinking involved of like distinguishing between one brand to another mm. is like problematic and w- under the law and stuff how like how that's actually like dystopian like a creep mm-hmm. towards dystopian of them like owning a portion of your like mental ram and and stuff and so like i think that that's something that it's something that isn't kind of like an open question in my mind and like trying to pick at like how how to approach that from like a left perspective that's you know thoughtful and considers different angles that's my my main request yeah, I that's like a really interesting area of inquiry. I mean, there's a lot of IP angles. There's all the pharma stuff. There's the way that de- the defamation law is being weaponized. I don't know if you saw that case where involving better work actually, where he was accusing some Republican of being in the pocket of some big business, and now the big business, it's like some billionaire in Texas who's suing better work for defaming him for just pointing out that he donated money to a politician for the same reason that everybody donates money to politicians <laughs> to get something in return. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm in Texas and, at the moment, so yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> God bless. Uh, if, the, if you guys uh, are part of this Marjorie Taylor Greene succession movement, um, I'll be praying for you guys. I mean, there's a lot of great people in Texas, so I'm sure you'll work it out. But, um, yeah, and then obviously what you're bringing up is so fascinating. I mean, the implications of that are incredible. Not to mention all of the riggedness of it where, you know, you get a copyright term unless you're Disney, and then you get to extend it up the wazoo. And, yep. you know, it's just it's, – there's so much there. Um, the, the fundamental principle of protecting intellectual property – and then all the ways that it's been, you know, the, in order to encourage innovation and then all the ways that it's been bastardized beyond recognition. It's just it's a great area. Yeah, to get into, even so. even just naming it intellectual property was a like a political move mm, mm. Um, to yeah. give like property rights to something that's like not tangible. And yeah. At the time, didn't have as many rights, and but they wanted to like kind of create mini monopolies, which yeah. Yeah, um, the 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 next thing was just that I actually had planned of talking about this before, but I actually really enjoyed your your interview with um, 
that the woman about the like the detransitioning stuff. You like, don't have to say that, right? No, no. I honestly like this was on my list. I was in picture, but my my phone's about to die. But um, the reason I just wanted to say like the reason I didn't think, at least from my my perspective, wasn't that like it was overly friendly or antagonistic. I thought it was just like a healthy level of skepticism in terms of like okay like but like what does that mean or like how how does this fit into the larger picture things like that like it wasn't antagonistic or anything and mm-hmm. a lot of the times when there's like because it's become so polarized mm-hmm. we like we think that when we think of anti-trans stuff we think of matt walsh or like mm-hmm. things like that but a lot of times and I'm not saying that she was like anti-trans or anything but there's a lot of times where it's it's harder to tell to find the line or like what your own to make a form opinion when they're like talking thoughtfully and sincerely mm-hmm. and when it is a bit more of a nuanced area and i just appreciated that kind of skepticism not i mean maybe skepticism is not the right word but just you know like being thoughtful in your own regard in terms of like trying to like figure things out like I don't know. I, I, I no, appreciated I, I, that. I think that's right. And, you know, I don't get it right all the time, but I really was actually trying not to bring my preconceptions into that interview, which is why I was so triggered, I think, by the earlier caller. Because I, I really, you know, I don't like talking about trans issues, in particular on Rising, because while I think that there is some space to have a nuanced conversation, it's very difficult to do so in a realm where you feel like there are a good number of bad faith actors in the mix in terms of like who comes on the show and stuff. So I like, I'm already in a place where it's like, well, I don't, I also don't want to alienate an audience by seeming like I can't hear and that I can't distinguish the differences between people and that I'm just like a histrionic lib. Like they think that I am anyway. (laughs) And so, you know, it's a very difficult it just, it takes more emotional energy than other kinds of interviews. And I also don't want the liberal or left-leaning audience to think that I am giving too much latitude to genuinely hateful beliefs. And so it's just, it's just a tightrope walk. And so I really did feel like, I mean, I was sincerely pleasantly surprised by that woman in the grand scheme of what I thought she could be, you know, Mm -hmm. and also pleasantly like I, I liked that she seemed to engage really substantively after the interview ended we had a nice little exchange before she logged off of the zoom like I thought it went well actually yeah I mean I thought <laughs> I thought it was productive like from in terms of like her perspective but then also like putting that in the grand scheme of things of like where where that fits and I, I don't know I thought it was healthy because the thing is, like, I, I, I'm, I'm inclined to, I'm inclined to agree. Okay, this is this is why it's difficult. I both believe that it's true that there is a, there are a mix of people talking about trans stuff. I think it's true, one, that it's a a much bigger piece of the national conversation than it should be because it's being politicized by people who are of bad faith. Two, I think that still, despite that fact, there are good faith actors who have sincere concerns about 
what the medical standards are, looking at other places in the world that we think of as open and free and progressive who have some more kind of like um, hoops is the wrong word, but, you know, processes in place that we don't have and that have narrowed narrowed the process a little bit in, in certain ways that are interesting to me because science does change and norms and standards change. And I'm interested to know if those changes are a good direction or a bad direction, but I don't think they're necessarily nefarious or anti-trans. I just would like to know more. And three, I feel like my ability to actually know and understand more is sometimes negatively impacted by the fact that people are so understandably defensive about discourse around this issue that to even entertain that there might be shifts in medical standards around some of this stuff can be characterized as transphobic in a way that makes you not even want to engage. And so all of those things being true, I like, I have some, some, some like sympathy for reporters who are driven by wanting to solve problems and understand things and report on things at the same time that I have a lot of sympathy for activists and trans people who recognize that what might be a sincere inquiry into changing norms and standards and, to, and science can be weaponized by people with this very coercive, bigoted political agenda. And so all of this stuff is happening at the same time, and it makes it difficult. And it makes me not want to talk about it <laughs> at all, and it's probably none of my business, and I wouldn't talk about it, but for the fact that, uh, you know, I'm on a show and producers... <laughs> topics and it is well it is. yeah i mean i think that that kind of almost models my and a lot of people hope i mean maybe a lot of people's approaches in that it's not something that most people deal with on a day-to-day so it's not something that we need to like necessarily spend this much focus on but since mm-hmm. it's being pushed mm-hmm. on a lot of people this narrative is that it's something that it's healthy to understand or like think about like how to think about how to address these situations, how to think process them. And something that I don't know for me has been helpful is to just think about it as like a rebuttal presumption. Like Mm -hmm. there's so much anti-trans stuff out there that it's just my assumption is that it's bad, but I'm entirely 100% open to be convinced like any specific person. Otherwise you just have to meet them not like antagonistically, but just like a, a healthy dose of mm-hmm. skepticism, which is what I thought why I actually wanted to call in because I thought that line was really, I, I appreciated the, the line you you weaved there. Well, I appreciate that. And I think that's a good way to put it, uh, rebuttable presumption. So thank you. I really, I really do appreciate you calling in, Ryder. No problem. Also, are you walking your dog right now? Yes, is that is that obvious? Yes, and Sorry. is it a Shiba Inu or is it something else? It's a Shiba, yeah. And um, obviously, it's adorable, but does it have a little bit of an attitude like Shiba Inus are notorious for having? Yes, but she's also <laughs> I like hit the jackpot in that she's also very sweet and cuddly. She has Aww. an attitude, but she's also cuddly. So, okay, what's her name? Kira. Kira. Well, shout out to Kira, the the one sweet she you knew. <laughs> yeah, she's a gem. But uh, thank you for all that you do. And I, I appreciate just to go one more word of praise or anything that um, I, I remember like a lot of people have been like pushing you into politics or anything like that. But I, I really appreciate what you do now and that you show your work. And that's like the most 
in this these times it's like the most helpful thing ever it seems like like that you, even if someone doesn't agree with you you put your you show your work you put like a plus b plus c equals d and then you know you can have disagreements but it's it's all there on the table and it it's so much more productive it seems thank, like thank you i hadn't thought about it in those terms but that is exactly what i i try to do and what i find to be valuable when i'm learning and thank thank you for helping me to understand <laughs> kind of my own process showing my work i thank you i'm going to i'm going to use that thanks writer no problem all right keep the bye. faith my friend you too bye 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 uh bk what's on your mind also by the way i saw someone in the comments saying something about how like i skipped them last time I didn't skip them. They happened to be at the front of the queue when I ended the call at the two hour mark. And that's unfortunately sometimes how the cookie crumbles, but they weren't skipped. And so no need to be holding on to any grudges, my friends. Uh, there's always another time. And I try to do the one from the front, one from random to try to create some sense of equity so that even if you're not first in line, odds are you'll be called on. And I try to target people who aren't familiar faces as well. So Sit tight. I'm sorry it doesn't work out perfectly every time, but we're doing our best here. BK, what's in your mind tonight? Hey, Supreme Leader. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just real quick, I, 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 real, I realized this week I can't, or last week, I can't listen to Rising while I'm driving anymore because, like, that lady came on to say that um, the UK has never committed a genocide and that um, only Nazi Germany has ever committed a genocide. Wait, I, I don't even heard... remember this. Wait, what, what was really? Which, which <laughs> one was this? Oh, she was like, we just shouldn't be conflating, you know, what the UK did with Nazi Germany. Wokeness has just gone too far that way. Only Nazi Germany committed, and then you pulled up the definition of genocide. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Oh, glory to blurs together. Wasn't that last week? Yeah, I, I almost got into an accident because of it. So <laughs> I can't listen, and then I can't listen in the shower because sometimes I, I'm like, oh, I need to comment, and then I get my phone wet. So, <laughs> but uh, I'm trying to keep up with rising. Um, but yeah, I was in, I've been thinking about um, the question you asked uh, Stephanie Kelton about um, taking like a rhetorical shortcut that you asked uh, P Professor Wolf about, and then she disagreed with doing that. Um, and I wanted to know if you were fed that question by a smarter man. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> like, have you been thinking about that? Like, like, have, uh, since her answer uh, that we should just like lean into it and explain MMT and not try to take any shortcuts. Yeah. I mean, this comes up, not just in MMT, but a lot of these things where it's like, Oh, it's a campaign. And are we going to say the, not popular thing or the difficult to understand thing or the stigmatized thing during a campaign or are we going to pretend that we believe something else just to get in office and we'll explain it later this came up with like the socialism stuff with bernie you know it came up with like the half a bowl of shit stuff with nina turner it's like stuff that i actually think will is beneficial for leftists but not until the work has been put in and what happens is that so much of like we don't invest in messaging we don't put money behind it you know, our media isn't what the corporate media is or even what right wing independent media is. So we don't we don't really do that work outside of the context of campaigns. So every campaign is the same old story. Oh, Lord. Now it's mm. incumbent on Nina Turner to explain the whole point of politics shouldn't be to boost Joe Biden, but to hold him accountable. And she has to do all of that messaging within the context of her campaign because I have a bowl of shit. But she just seems like an anomalous voice. 
Bernie Sanders has to explain to all of America what MMT is and also what socialism is because outside of a campaign, no one talks about it. And we have half of the progressives in Congress signing up for a bill condemning socialism. You know, that could have been a really good opportunity to have a little bit of a teaching lesson. Right. So, yeah, I'm inclined to believe that you got to start talking about this stuff because it's only going to get harder when someone's going to run and the stakes are going to be higher. And you can't put on any given candidate all of that responsibility. You know, is Marianne now going to have to go and explain MMT to America? Is she going to have to explain socialism to America? Is she going to have to explain, you know, all of this stuff? Because during the last three or four years, Bernie's been sitting around not talking about that stuff because he doesn't have to. Right. Yeah, I, 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 yeah go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I mean, people want to hear from you more, don't I? <laughs> well, no, I was just going to add that I understand not wanting to expend political capital. Like, I understand Bernie sitting up there in Vermont going, um, I need to figure out a way to expand Medicare. And I shouldn't be talking about socialism. I'm never going to run for office again. Nobody needs to hear about socialism for me. But if you really believe that people in the world need to understand that they have different kinds of political options and that whatever they call it, they need to be looking to candidates that don't take corporate money and candidates that want more democracy in the workplace and that there's been a real diminishment in worker control over businesses. And there's a, a, dispar- a disparate, a disproportionate um, siphoning of wealth to elites as opposed to the working classes that's happened over the last six years. Like if you want them to understand all of this and be able to identify who a good candidate is because they have that kind of more structural and long-term historical understanding of what's going on, then you got to tell them. And you you can't do all that work in some like eight month campaign period. Yeah, I that that makes me think of how like chess player, you know, in poker they, they talk about how there's like, like in poker there's like more than eighteen thousand strategically unique situations. So you can't perfectly prepare for all of them. You you have to be like constantly getting your reps in and working on like your heuristics for when something unexpected does happen. You mm-hmm. have some, so I, I get what you're saying, but I was also thinking about it during the Nathan Robinson discussion. Cause he was talking about like be, having to be prepared for what your opponent is going to say and mm-hmm. how hopefully I'm like, I saw Michael Tracy, like, well, well I'm not going to get into this, but like, I was also thinking like, like, I mean, I've never studied game theory, um, like formally, but you know, I do make $6 an hour. So playing a strategy game and, uh, like, it, it's really easy to fall into the pitfalls of, like, only responding to what your opponent is doing. Mm. And, um, like, if you only do that, you'll never be as profitable as the people who study game theory optimal um, and, like, try to reach equilibrium with their play instead of just focusing on the other person. And so for this situation, I feel like when, when you're uh, asking, like, you when you bring up the question, like, well, what does the left have to offer here? You know, like, like things are awful for men, but what does the left have to offer? That mm-hmm. seems like the, the game theory optimal strategy of like, let's just focus on what we can offer and being truthful mm-hmm. instead of like getting overly concerned about like, you know, even what they're saying about trans people. And I, mm-hmm. I don't want to talk about trans stuff, but just really just as a strategic matter, right? Like if we radicalized, Every lawyer in the country, there's like one in 300 people are lawyers. There's a lot more than that that are, that are trans. There's a lot more than that that are in the LGBTQ bowl of soup. So that seems like like, maybe if you were, you know, an oligarch, you would really feel a need to keep that coalition shit Libby and not 
mm-hmm. lefty. But it seems like the fact that they've been so successful at that, everyone on the left is just like, man, it sucks that trans people exist and that they're getting turned right. <laughs> like, like, no, like the, the hand you've been dealt <laughs> is that trans people exist. Like, stop trying to wish that they didn't. Mm-hmm. And like, you can, radi- like, you have a, be- a better ability to radicalize them because lots of trans people are homeless and like, mm-hmm. all kind- you know, they're, and, and it, it, we're, we live across all the classes. We're not just in some discrete town that can be ignored like somewhere in Ohio. Um, so, yeah, I, str- I struggle with this. Sometimes it's like, I hear the conversations happening, let's say on rising about trans issues. And sometimes I'm like, I maybe have an opinion. Maybe I have a little bit of a take. Maybe I think, Oh, maybe I agree a little bit that JK Rowling isn't, isn't Matt Walsh and people shouldn't collapse the difference between them as irritating and hateful as JK Rowling can be. Maybe I have my little slice of a take, but then I think to myself, what I really want to say what I think would be really constructive here is to say, well, whatever you think, trans people are human beings who deserve every right and privilege as everybody else in America. And to the extent that they are being targeted right now by any number of laws that would strip them of those rights and privileges, we should stand together as a community and protect them. I care about the, the, right, the human rights of trans people. Like simple, basic statements like that that are really difficult to contest. I think trans people should be safe. I yeah. think trans people should be healthy. I think trans people should have housing. I think trans people should have health care. I think trans people shouldn't live in fear. And and challenge people to stop thinking about some nitpicky, what, well, what would I think if there was a trans girl on my daughter's soccer team? And just really just like reaffirm the basic kind of like the anti-fascist principles of, you know, because they want you to start otherizing and otherizing and otherizing people and going down this um, path. And I also mm-hmm. think that sometimes like when I was debating with Robbie about the my radar on the child labor stuff. And he says, well, I think that people should be able to contract and kids can work where they want to work. So crazy. I was like, okay, look, I was pretty confident that the audience was with me on the whole child labor thing. So I just was, I made a decision. I was like, you know, Robbie, I don't think that I actually have to argue with you on this one. If your position is that children should be working in the middle of the night, uh, operating decapitation machines at 14 years old, God bless you're entitled to this, that opinion. It's a free country. But most people don't think that that's right and good. And so what kind of, you know, what are we going to do about it? What kind of society do the rest of us want to build since your opinion is not really going to factor in here? <laughs> you know, and, I, and I've, I've taken to sometimes just turning to the camera and away from Robbie and addressing the audience directly. And making that physical shift sometimes reminds me that, you know, it's not about Robbie. It's about me getting out there what I want to get out there. And that's not necessarily what's responsive to whatever Robbie has just said. And it's difficult, but I think you're completely right about that. Thinking about what my, what did you call it? My optimal, optimal. Game theory optimal. Yeah, my, what my game theory optimal is and not just how to win the argument with the person who happens to be sitting next to me that day. Right. Um, and the last thing I, um, uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit embarrassed to admit that um, I used to be a lawyer and I've had a fall from grace. But before that, I... Uh... It's okay. It's a, it's a great <laughs> club. Welcome. <laughs> um, your fall from grace is cooler. <laughs> um, but I, well, you know I one thing I love about Professor Hansen is that I remember him saying he never took the bar. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, I thought and, it was and ended up at Harvard Law. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I did actually pass the bar and then worked at a... Uh, a law firm that did uh, asset protection, which is, uh, you know, protecting rich people from mm. having to pay up for their liability. 
So um, it's okay. We've all been there. It's growth, you know. We all have our trajectories. The, <laughs> you said at the end that you had some questions about how that works, like um, um, like the like how, piercing the corporate veil, mm-hmm. like the. The people whose corporate veil gets pierced most are doctors because mm. they think they're above it all and they'll just buy all their personal stuff with their corporate bank account. Oh, interesting. Um, yes. <laughs> but, but I mean, it was, you know, it, it only works if it's only civil liability, right? If it's criminal, then the law firm can't help anymore because then it's money laundering. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting. So... Like, I've, I've thought a lot over the years about, like, how to handle this because it's, you know, it's like, the law firm used to get really amazing, like, Christmas cards and gifts from the banks in the Cook Islands. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> because, you know, we sent them so much business. And it's like, you know, if it's a whole world, you know, an international law sucks, what do we do about it? Like, the simple answer is to criminalize, to, you know, to make it, because then the, the money can't go hide hiding all every which mm-hmm. way so easily into uh, into other shell corporations and trusts um so that's kind of and and my torts class you know it, it definitely it we also learned that mcdonald's example mm-hmm. but it, it reinforced the uh just world fallacy because it mm-hmm. was like yeah even though the media had it all wrong the law was doing right you know the law had it all figured out and like sure there's all these harms in the world but torch torts law shows up to make everyone whole was like I mean, sort of, because wasn't her initial judgment dramatically reduced by the court? I don't, I don't remember. Like, she won. <laughs> so my recollection of it, and again, this was, you know, 15 years ago or whatever. But my recollection of it is that she was awarded a really big sounding judgment, like many millions of dollars. Um, hundreds of millions even, maybe. Tens of millions, something like that. Something very, very big. But that it... Um, even though it sounded large, what it was was one day of profit from coffee sales. McDonald's one day coffee sale profit, which is obviously put that into the scale of like not that big a deal for McDonald's. And, but that the number was so big and so kind of scandalous and shocked the conscience of the public that the court ended up dramatically reducing her judgment. So yes, she won, but like to, to make that an argument that like, the law is rational and overcomes like the bad media narrative. Like, no, the media narrative, I, I would say, made, yeah, I would make the case, had a, played a role. The public mm. perception played a role in her ultimately getting way less money than the jury thought she should. Yeah, and the McDonald, they, they, I do remember about the case that they were warned ahead of time. Like, so there were several un- other injuries that were similar, but before hers, that like mm-hmm. reached bone. She was just the elderly one. Um, yeah, that but, feels right. Anyway, right. Uh, thank you so much for you know being the supreme leader. And uh, it's so <laughs> sexist the way that people don't respect that though, for real. Like, it's so. It's just, it's a big sexism. And then when people are like, oh, well, I didn't know, you know, because she went to Harvard, as though they have some secret information that they hold and like gave it out to you. And that's how come you can win a debate. Like, it's, it's just sexism. I'm just going to hang up after that. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, BK. Hey, if I debate Ben Shapiro, I'm just going to steal that line. Hey, it's not my fault. I, I lost. I didn't realize that you went to Harvard Law. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Take care. Thanks for calling in, BK. You've been great. 
All right. What do we have here? What do we have here? Just because it's a lawyer episode, let me bring up Bide. Also, actually, because it's like the end of the night and I want to like run out this clock, I'm going to bring out Bide and Jonathan at the same time, and these are going to be the last callers. Oh, shit. Sorry, Bide. I just accidentally nexted you. Where did you go? Bide, no. Hey, Jonathan. I'm going to let you in. Bide. Shit, sorry. I. Oh, here we go. Wait a minute. He'll be back. Um, make my to speak. Sorry, I made you both callers and you bumped each other. All right. Um, all right. You can go first, Bide. Oops. You're going to have to unmute yourself, Bide. I'm bringing in some, uh, some juice from the store, so why don't you go first? Cool. Perfect. Okay. Well, Nessa asked a specific question I wanted to answer. She's like, did the COVID checks cause inflation? So it's like yes and no. You know, um, if, I, if, I'm, if I make widgets, you know, and, I, and I'm in the city of a million people and I'm going to sell 10,000 of them widgets, right? And I have a price I'm going to sell them at. I can't sell service more than 10,000 because I got to source the metal in different places. I got to pay more for labor and not that many people need them that badly. So there's a plateau right at 10,000. Well, if you fly a plane over and dump money on the city, like I'm not going to try to sell more than 10,000 people widgets for the reasons I just mentioned. I'm just going to charge more for the 10,000 customers that I have mm-hmm. because they, they, they got the money. So, this is the problem with the supply and demand chart in you know, Econ 102. It's like what Milton Friedman would say is I've increased demand for widgets. But have I? All you mm-hmm. did was increase the supply of money because money is a commodity of its own. It's not just a measure of value and a medium of exchange. Like it's its own animal. It's its own commodity. So we all know what crystal ball or whoever means when they say it's not inflation because the costs didn't re- – my costs didn't go up. I'm just, you know, taking what I can get. I'm, I'm in a race to seize those extra dollars. So we know what she means because she says exactly what she means right then and there or, who, or whoever does. Mm-hmm. But it's also at the same time kind of ridiculous to say it's not like the, the price has literally inflated. To, mm-hmm. so to say that there's no inflation is in another sense totally ridiculous. Right. So it's like. Really about yeah, well, why is it going well, up? The way Fidel Kaboob was saying, I think it was him, maybe it was Richard Wolf. I think it was Professor Kaboob. He was saying like, okay, just simplify it. Inflation is when uh, uh, corporations raise their prices, when producers raise their prices for whatever reason. And so that captures both the supply chain crises and the price gouging. And so right, if you think about you have, inflation right. less as like an abstract like, market force and more as like a choice that producers are making either because they want to take more money because they sense that you have some and they want to price gouge or because they genuinely have higher costs and want to pass them on to the consumer. But when you use the word inflation to describe both of those things, you, you, you destroy it. It becomes, it's equivocation fallacy because it means too many different things. Some people mean core CPI. Some people mean how it trades with bonds. Some people mean how I mean, it's you can say it destroys it, or you can say, well, that makes you, it forces you to have a more specific conversation from a policy perspective. Right, without actually using it. the word inflation, because if you can't make your point without actually saying that word, then you probably don't know what you're talking about. So well, I think like take the education. So Fidel Kaboob says there's like these four areas where there's inflation. Education is one of them. Yeah. And, and in education, it is a, 
it's like a sur- you can argue there's like a surplus of money issue because the guaranteed federal debt means that there is money. It's not real money, but I mean, it, you know what I mean? It's not like yeah. people's money, but it's like federally backed loans to pay for the good so that colleges can raise their prices. Right. And, yeah. and it also was a little bit, he was saying the other stuff, there is a supply chain crisis that means the cost of building dorms and, you know, funding labor and all of these things is going up as well. And then people like yeah. Robbie like to bring up administrative bloat and stuff like that, which I, I, I can't acknowledge is probably a part of it as well. But well, I would argue the not private the sector piece. than the public one. So I don't know if his argument's super great. If you look at healthcare and like, like public ones spend like 3% on administration and private ones spend like 13% on administration. So mm-hmm. there's like no evidence that the private sector's less wasteful in that way. Mm-hmm. But it's all the sure. voucher. It's the voucher phenomenon. You give a voucher and the voucher gentrifies because I don't know who you had. We were talking about Section 8. I'm like, yeah, but it bounces money off of poor people into the hand of the landlord to whom the check is sent directly, paying the landlord the difference between what the tenant can afford and whatever the landlord thinks they deserve. That's schools. That's housing. That's COVID checks. That's 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 everything. So, but so if you just forget about the budget even existing and just be like. Congress passes a spending bill, the Treasury writes the checks, and those checks carry the force of law that causes that money to come into existence. And there's no budget. There's just how many dollars exist. And every new dollar is going to take away from every existing dollar, sort of. But it's about do those dollars create value? If you're just creating like a places people can do rent extraction, then you're going to inflate asset prices and commodity prices with no yeah, I return. Think, I think that was the bridge example that I can't quite put my brain on. Yeah, I couldn't quite get it either. Value. I was trying to wrap my head a bridge, but you, you may not have been saying it right. But I definitely it, wasn't. <laughs> so if you, if you pay a bunch of money to create housing for people, okay, you might devalue my currency 1%, but you just reduced my cost of living by 40%. So what do I care about the loss of my purchasing power of the dollar? Because what do I need it for? Mm-hmm. You know, now you're giving me the thing for free. So that's not a voucher, though. That's a universal basic service, not a universal basic income. So I don't like the MMT conversation happening absent of universal basic services and a wealth tax, because those aren't just how we survive this monetary system. They're how you survive any monetary system. They're how you survive fiat currency is you have to have a wealth tax to provide. Remember the voltage? It's the ohms. It's the resistance that pushes the money out of the asset bubble down into people who do things. And the universal basic services removes the burden on the worker to sell themselves peanuts because they're not going to be pitted against each other like dogs fighting for meat. So that's the top-down and bottom-up solution that, you know, Stephanie Kelton, I think she understood the machinations of modern money mechanics. We, We skip over MMM. That's modern money mechanics. It's just a description of how it, works the theory is uh, somebody's opinion and what should be done with that information but her she, she's not really a, a leftist and i'm not trying to get into some esoteric argument about what a real leftist is but she's not a leftist by any stretch she's talking about how bonds are people's savings that's your savings that's not my savings i don't have savings the poor don't have savings they're never going to have savings they need to have the cost of living reduced so the last analogy i'll do is just mm-hmm. you got the the, the the neocon republicans want to trickle money down through the private sector so everybody can afford it ever increasing cost of living the neoliberal democrats want to trickle money down through the public sector a little bit more through the public sector so everybody can afford an ever increasing cost of living it's never questioned that the 
cost of living going up year over year prohibitively is just an immutable force of nature. That that's just has to be the way that it is. That does not have to be the way that it is. If you remove the cost of living being so onerous and the sort of Damocles hanging over your head the first of every month, then you divest from the dollar. You don't need as much money in the first place. I'd rather not need it than have a lot of it. That may be just my personality, but yeah, did that's, you see that Bernie give me that interview? He's on. He's in a little big book tour, and he was talking to that MSNBC lady with the cute little short dark hair Bob. This is not important. The, no. per, the point is that he, um, you know, maybe it wasn't that interview. Some some interviewer was basically like, you know, you talk about. Um, you know, Scandinavia and how they've got all this stuff there. But, you know, they also pay like a 60% tax rate. And Bernie's response was like, yeah, let's talk about it. Let's talk about whether or not that's a trade that people are willing to make. We should be at least having that conversation. I really liked actually how he didn't get very defensive about it. It's like, oh, but oh, they pay 60%, but you don't need the money. But it's, it's basically what you're saying. But like there was a lightness to how he was like, yes. And let's 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 talk about whether or not people would rather make that trade. Just like we were talking about with the Medicare for all example. Let's talk about whether people would like to pay the same amount of their paying in premiums now. Hell, maybe even a little bit more, but to know that they're guaranteed it's not a little bit more, it won't be a little bit more. But even hypothetically, to know that they're guaranteed health insurance no matter what, no hell or high water, even if, you know, they skip they miss their premium payment, because there is no premium payment. Because it's a guarantee, it's guaranteed as a right. No matter when you lose your job, to have that certainty, you know, do you think people would be up for that challenge? And there's something, um, I don't know, it, it, it opened this whole lane when he approached it that way. And I think that's what you're describing right now, that people, you know, how it shifts, shifts your whole thinking about income and how much money you need when you know that things can only get so bad because you have a genuine social safety net. Yeah. And as far as like uh, using a taxes as a way to destroy dollars because you, you're creating so many with all these universal basic services, you don't tax the people to whom you're giving the services. You tax the, the, the wealthy and not, with it, not even with an income tax. Remember Jeff Bezos, his annual salary for the CEO was only like $80,000. Taxing yeah. his income is not how you get at that wealth. Taxing the corporation's profits when Amazon, Netflix, Peloton, and whoever else don't even make profits is not how to get at that wealth. You don't tax the corporation, you tax its owners, land, stocks, and bonds. You could put them all in a big thing and call it an asset tax. But that's the only one that should needs to really exist. Remember that Iowa, if you just tax the land, it's 10.6%. You could fund their whole state budget just with a 10.6% land tax and not tax FICA, not tax sales, not tax the property above the land not tax people's income, all of which destroy money velocity. They lower the voltage, the money velocity. The only thing that increases the money velocity is a disincentivization of hoarding of, of people who borrow from the Fed at 0.2%, buy the stock market, and watch that value go up 10% year over year. That yeah, I needs think to be a, expensive to do that. And I think that what the irony is that all of these tax cuts for the rich, I mean, they, they, the argument of trickle down, what they're actually doing is giving money to people who are the only folks who can hoard <laughs> because they don't have the, um, you know, the daily yeah, expenses. The, the trickle the down only do. works if you squeeze those people and you, all of a sudden it, it costs them a lot to do nothing. And then you squeeze it out and they're, instead of just watching that number go up 10% because that's going to cost them 10% to watch it go up 10%, they might start a business that sells tacos whatever you know anything you're going to hire people who don't have precarity because they have free housing to do all kinds of shit you could whatever 
And you could have yeah. big job programs. Uh, I don't know about job guarantees. I don't like the word guarantee because it makes it sound like the state's going to be telling everybody to melt shovels for metal to make shovels. But you could get people in California to prevent forest fires. It's a hilariously boring job. You literally rake the floor of the forest to get trenches going for these controlled burns. I did this in Piasta, Iowa for two mm. summers. You know, you, you just, I rake the forest floor all day long. But then you do this controlled burn and you get all the... Uh, the biomass, you know, all those leaves out has to be a certain humidity, burn it out. You could spend a bunch of money keeping people busy doing this. And how much does California lose every year in property value to fire, like a billions of dollars? So what, what, where's the downside here? You moved money around. Yeah. How did FDR in the war, quote, get us out of the, uh, the depression? It just moved yeah. money around. That's all. That's velocity. That's money velocity. That's the only reason. Forced yeah. money around. Well, look, thank, thanks as always, Jonathan. I got to move on just because I wanted to wrap at the two-hour mark, and I still got to close my rings uh, tonight, and I want to get Biden here really quickly. Yeah, Biden, can so you close us out in five minutes or less? Yeah. Um, your professor's awesome. Uh, that is – he's rad. I, I, <laughs> that in law school, um, I guess the closest thing was like a crim law professor who talked about – uh, like determinism and how if people can't even choose what brains and brain chemistry and circumstances that they're born into and yada, 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 then mm. you actually get out of punishment. Um, what mm. people, uh, you know, to the extent that it has a deterrent effect. Okay. I guess, but only in so far as it has a deterrent effect. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's weird because I, I think my favorite part of the episode was really when, when you were talking about the strict liability standard and it was either you or him brought up the uh, inherently dangerous product thing, mm -hmm. inherently dangerous activity. And that's something that, you know, I've been practicing. I did torts for a long time. Um, for like four or five years, I did a lot of torts, um, always defense. And it's, it's weird that, I worked for so many companies, including there were a couple of uh, cases where uh, we represented like somebody who may or may not have caused an oil spill. <laughs> and it was like a whole, it was like a pals graph kind of like who did what we represent, like some people who cut trees mm -hmm. and the trees hit a power line and the power line went and shocked the ground and the ground went and shocked a pipeline that was four feet below. And then mm -hmm. the, guy who had the warning software was just like, ah, this software always does this. Let's let it run. And then it flooded a, a wetlands. So mm. who's, you know, who's to blame in that? Yeah. But this idea that there was like, I can't believe I forgot even the idea of like an inherently dangerous activity was supposed to be a strict liability standard because that's mm. how rare it is for it to actually come up. Mm -hmm. And with this East Palestine situation, I think what's, if anyone could take away anything from uh, just this situation in the law as it applies to East Palestine, like the fact that you can see what look like mushroom clouds caused by the burnoff of a train derailment that happens in this town, uh, that you could see uh, animals dying, that people are being poisoned, they're dealing with all kinds of, you know, fallout effects from it. And legally speaking, not only is that not seen as an inherently dangerous activity under like uh, uh, 
you know, a tort law, but from a regulatory standpoint, uh, with the train classification, not having the increased or the maximum safety classification because of the lobbying that happened under Obama, um, to where they made a distinction between, uh, flammable materials and combustible materials. And since these materials are only combustible, well, then they don't have to follow the safety standards of, of flammable materials. You know, if you, if you take anything away, it's like the, the law does not work if the people who are, have uh, an excess amount of power to make the laws and shape the laws are the people who are supposed to be regulated by those laws. It, it, it just doesn't work. Like, yeah. The, you yeah. know, it's like, yep. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that um, is the fucked upness that launched me on a little personal mini political revolution. Because I, I, I got to say, let me confess that I actually did not like torts. And it wasn't Professor Hansen's fault. It was that I was very depressed uh, one all year and I just yeah. hated my whole situation. Uh, and there was really nothing he could do to fix it. <laughs> There's nothing anybody could do. It wasn't right. really until I took him from corporate law three all year that I really understood the genius of what was happening and of his method. Because also he's very subtle. It's not like he busts in the door like the Kool-Aid man talking about, we're doing a Marxism now, kiddos, buckle up. <laughs> You know, it was he, you know, you didn't have a sense of his politics or like, here we are, just another law class, like whatever. But he is just, he just is so subtle. And it all just starts to come together and make sense in this like gloriously cosmic way. And what I realized, what I realized from that class and how I think about my own politics now is like all of the things that I believe fit together because I, there's like a systemic understanding of what's going on. And when right. something doesn't resonate with me, I'm like, okay, well, is something wrong with one of my assumptions and my worldview, or am I not understanding this thing right? And I, it's like, I know how to solve the problem because I expect everything to fit together. And part of the reason why everything fits together for me is because I was supplied with all of these really consistent, coherent narratives in these classes about how the world works, what motivates change. You know, like when, when is the, the gap between the world as it is and the world as it should be becoming so big that suddenly there's some revolutionary action to bring it all into balance again, whether through narrative, it's narratives that just make it seem balanced or through actual change. Like all of these kinds of things, you know, the subjectivity of the situationist approach, the scripts that were being fed through media and advertising, you know, the, the, the corruption of the administrative state, the right. – Capture of politics, the who was writing the laws, the the Powell memo and all of the things that happened with the capture of the federal judiciary and the like all of this stuff. It's like it, that and like listen liberal that those classes and listen liberal set that out for me in the most cogent way possible. And ever since I consumed them, it's not like it taught me to believe anything I didn't believe, but it just made it all make sense and gave yeah. me a level of confidence to talk to other people about my intrinsic feelings about how the world was unfair in a world in a way that felt so much less subjective. And I just can't say enough how grateful I am to have had that and how much I want everyone to have had that because I genuinely believe that if everyone had to sit through a couple of years of John Hansen teaching, the world would be a much better place. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well said, well said. And, uh, I don't think I've seen a professor as proud of his student 
as uh, he seemed to be of you. So, uh, well, y'all, let me tell you, your girl didn't say a goddamn <laughs> word in either of those classes. <laughs> she sat there quiet as a mouse, completely forgettable and invisible. <laughs> I think that makes it better, though, because to see you go on like someone that you had no idea was absorbing all of this stuff. <laughs> and, you know, there were times today that were genuinely it was really sweet because he he's like, you remember every word. Every word I taught you, oh, my darling student. And, you know, you're quoting back, like, uh, you know, his specific class lessons to him. And now he sees you on this podcast, uh, you know, preaching the good word. It's, uh, it's got to feel pretty good as a, as a teacher to see that, uh, you know, you had an effect on at least one student in a big way. So. Yeah, well, it helps that he's also just truly the sweetest man if it didn't also yeah. come across. Just, just a sweet he, oh and compassionate man. Yeah. Um, he he and, was awesome. I'd have such a guy crush on him if I was in his <laughs> class. Like, I want to be him when I grow up. <laughs> I mean, for real. Uh, when, especially when he told me he never took the bar. I was like, oh, maybe I should be yeah, a law professor. Yeah. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't have to, I don't have to actually take the bar. Like, that was a real consideration yeah. for me for a hot second. Yeah, um, but uh, you got your yeah. steps and stuff to get in. I don't want to keep you too long. But uh, thank you, I appreciate really that. the episode. Yep. Thank uh, you, bye. Peace. Have fun. Okay. Peace. Bye. Have fun. Keep the faith. You guys are great. I look forward to whatever Monday's episode is. Uh, oh, I'm recording it tomorrow. Okay, yeah, it's gonna be a good one. You guys are gonna be happy. I hope. Thank you for all of your patience. I'll see you next week. Keep the faith. And the Fed. Says it was So I guess I'll go home into the arms of the girl that I love. The only love I haven't screwed up. She's so hard to please, but she's a forest fire. I do my best to meet her demands, play it romance. We slow dance in the living room, but all that a stranger would see. Is one girl swaying alone, stroking the cheek They say, you're a little much for me You're a liability You're a little much for me So they pull back, make other plans I understand, I'm a liability Get you wild, make you leave I'm a little much for everyone The truth is I am a toy that people enjoy Till all of the tricks don't work anymore And then they are bored of me I know that it's exciting running through the night But every perfect summer's eating me alive Until you're gone Better on my own, they say You're a little much for me You're a liability You're a little much for me So they pull back, make other plans I understand, I'm a liability Get you wild